Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey, what's up? This is Jeff Cobb, and you're listening to Keep It A Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is a network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get-go, boy Yeah, from Tampa Bay to the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your host, Jeremy Donovan And the young boy, Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jim Donovan here with the young boy Josh Smith and Rich Latta from One Nation Radio. On today's show, we'll be celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Rainmaker Shock, answering your questions and covering all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping a strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for njpwworld.com. With features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit NJPWEXT.us today for details. Young boy, Rich, how you guys doing? Good, man. Just uh, glad to be back on Keeping It Strong Styles. Been a very long time. Um, you know, usually uh, I'll check in every week. And I'm, I'm a steady listener, so I am caught up on what's going on. Uh, but it's always glad to, or I'm always glad to show back up on Keeping a Strong Style. Yeah, a good podcast. A real podcast where we talk about real wrestling. None of that Joshi bullshit. Men's wrestling. <laughs> men's wrestling. Men's singles. Where, where no, men um, it's, be it's, men. It's been, a while. <laughs> it's been a while since we had Rich and... Uh, the only way we were able to get him to come back on is to talk about something that interests him. So, you know, Okada Tanahashi, and he's like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so, so like, you know, like I, I've, I've, like I said, keeping the strong style keeps me updated. I check in and follow everything pretty much. And, you know, I think New Japan's actually in a little bit better place, of course, when Okada wins the belt, it starts feeling better naturally. So, um, <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm, 
really excited to be here, but uh, I think New Japan's on the uh, upswing. Well, before we talk about New Japan, let's talk about uh, the fact that you are now certified and signed. Rich Latta is all elite. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right, yeah, go ahead and tell the listeners, if they haven't seen it already, about uh, what you're involved in coming up with uh, A-Dub. Oh, yeah, yeah And man. explain it to me, too, because I don't totally get what's going on right now. Okay, so <laughs> uh, I started hearing about this project probably in late November, early December. Um, there was going to be a music project put together for Black History Month for a lot of the wrestlers in AEW. So they would have songs like inspired by them or uh, anything like that. And uh, through Montezzi, who was actually one of the executive producers on the project, along with Mikey Ruckus. Some of you guys might know Mikey Ruckus from all the themes he does in AEW. He's pretty active on Twitter. Um, I was able to submit some stuff and I'm actually like the news dropped today. I wasn't, I didn't know it was going to drop. So my social media has been on fire today, but um, I'm producing on uh, Jade Cargill's song. It's kind of a dance hall track. Uh, I've never actually made a dance hall beat until now. And it actually came out pretty awesome. Um, I'm also made the beat for um, Mark Henry's song um, that has Josiah Williams from wrestling flow as well as Montezzi on there. Um, Righteous Reg and Anthony King and Montezzi are on the Jade song. And then I'm also producing the Nyla Rose song and I'm rapping on that one as well. Um, so on that one, funny story, I was like, I love the beat so much. I just sent the verse. I wasn't originally supposed to be rapping, but I sent it and I guess, you know, they loved it. So I'm on there with John Connor, Montezzi, and this guy named Blizz. Um, John Connor used to be signed to Dr. Dre um, Aftermath. So he's a pretty big name and all that. So we're going, you know, we're talking about Nyla and going back and forth and doing our thing. But uh, it's a really exciting project to be a part of. Uh, got three songs on there. I don't, I don't know if anyone else can say that. I haven't checked, but very excited, like big fan of AEW and um, big, always wanted to, you know, use my music in wrestling somehow because uh, I used to have those old WWF aggression uh, albums yes. back in the day. Uh, loved the old Godfather theme uh, on there. So, uh, it ain't, it ain't easy, man. Correct, correct. <laughs> so I, I was, I was very happy when um, I got the green light that all this stuff was uh, actually going to happen. So shouts out to Montezzi and, um, Appreciate everybody that's already showed love on the social media. Like I said, like just everyone coming out of the woodwork saying I deserve this and all that. I'm like, man, I almost felt like it was doing you deserve it chance. So I want you like, oh, deserve it. I, I earned this, <laughs> you know, so, um, and keeping it strong. So of course getting one of the earliest themes I've ever done. So, uh, you know, that's well, what this means is you're now the three time, three time, three time published artist with AEW. So, yeah, so <laughs> never know. Cool. Uh, it, it could lead to more stuff and, you know, uh, everything goes well. I would expect it to. Here's the thing. We did get one of those early themes. And, Jeremy, I think you know what that means. Rich is blowing up. His stock's never been higher. <laughs> this is just raising the profile of our show. Correct. And you know what I think we need to do with that theme? We sell an NFT, baby. <laughs> Got to put it in the, in, the, in the metaverse. Yeah. And um, Rich will not be getting a cut. He'll be wow. getting congratulations and uh, thank yous, but we never signed an agreement to cut a him few in tweets. <laughs> Get that man <laughs> a, hot, a hot dog and a handshake. Yeah. A hot dog and a handshake, yeah. Wait, Tradi what's it called? Uh, traditional wrestling pay. 
you'll get exposure. Yeah, correct. <laughs> Traditional wrestling pay. Get some experience, kid. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what's going on with it, and um, I believe it comes out uh, February eighteenth. I think the hard copies have gone on pre order uh, today, February first. So um, uh, get your order in and check those out. And I'm going to be doing uh, beat breakdown videos for all those too. So uh, you guys will be able to hear that. Nice man, looking forward for that coming out. Get the pre order. Everybody needs to get on that. Too, by the way, yeah, man. Appreciate it, man. All right, well, we've got a couple of things here to talk about this week. Even though uh, New Japan uh, shut down, like we mentioned in the intro, we're going to talk about the the Rainmaker Shock and uh, some of the matches in the the early stage of Okada Tanahashi. Uh, but first thing, we've got to name our, our January Wrestler of the Month and Match of the Month. And uh, Josh, we didn't really talk about this, but um, I, I took a good guess at, at what the Wrestler of the Month, Match of the Month should be. So. Yeah, when I saw this printed on the rundown, I just assumed that I must have given you the go-ahead because nothing happens on the show without my say-so. But uh, <laughs> now that you're uh, now that you've told me that you didn't approve it, I feel like I want to veto this and uh, you know maybe maybe have a deeper discussion about some of these candidates. I don't know, but uh, no, I'm just playing. I I, I agree with you 100. Well, tell the people who are our wrestler of the month is. Yeah, without further ado, so our wrestler of the month. January 2022, none other than the Rainmaker himself, Kazushiko Okada. And, I mean, who else could it be if you think about it? I mean, a classic in the Dome with Shingo Takagi, an even better match and a greater classic the next day with Will Ospreay. Unified all three of those fucking belts, one big belt. And then, you know, the next night, you know, he whoops some Noah trash ass. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he did it. he did it back to back to back. So, I mean... Who else could it be? Right. Yeah, man. Okada was uh was excellent. Um, he has turned up. Um, you know, I, I think there are people that would say Okada has like not been his best in the clap crowd environment over there, but I think he's really starting to put it together. And then now he's uh, actually getting to step into the spotlight. He can't just mess around in the semi-main events anymore. And he's, I think he's taken a lot of the stuff that he's learned and it manifested itself in two great matches in the dome. And then, you know, uh, teaming up with Tanahashi to uh, handle that Noah trash, as you said. <laughs> yeah. Three uh, big Russell Kingdom main events there for the Rainmaker on a fitting episode where we'll be talking about the beginning of his career. Um, then the, the match of the month for January, 2022 is the main event from night two of Wrestle Kingdom 16, Kazuchika Okada versus Will Ospreay to unify the IWGP titles. And, man, that was just a epic main event, probably the best match in their series. Will stepped up big time. Um, Okada, once again, after having that amazing match with Shingo the first night, which easily could have been the January match as well, uh, but the, the Okada-Ospreay match just, just was on another level. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the best match of the month uh, outside of uh, Doki and Tai Chi. Other than that, it's the best. Yeah, man. Um, I think Why you guys don't sell me on my joke. Well, oh my I, God. That, that's serious. Well, I mean, that was a pretty good match. Doki, from, you know, yeah. how you were describing it. Doki so and Tai Chi. <laughs> Doki and Tai Chi was raw. Like if that was a, a New Japan match, like that could have been considered. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't like you were bringing up some three and a quarter match that you know you were a hipster on an island for. So right now, if you guys had like the Royal Rumble, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, I think people need to stop lying about Will Ospreay. And if you listen to the, to this show and you lie to yourself about Will Ospreay, don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like with with something like that, if you don't like someone, just say why you don't like them. Say it with your chest. You don't have to lie about it. It actually makes your argument about why you don't like them much more valid because no one can argue it. If you're like, I don't like this guy because of the allegations of speaking out or because he acts like an idiot on uh, you know, social media, no one's going to be like, you're wrong. We're going to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But all these people trying to break their brains being like, he's not a good wrestler. Uh, okay. <laughs> Stop the cap. <laughs> just tell the truth. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, just, that's just mind-blowing. Like, Will Ospreay, he's a phenomenal wrestler. You don't want to like him for other reasons that you have the total right to, and you probably, maybe it's a, it's a good idea, but you, you can't knock the wrestling. I was talking with Rich this week, and I was like, you know, I don't think Tessa Blanchard should be signed anywhere, but I'm not going to be like, you know why I hate her? She sucks in the ring. No, I'm just going to be like, she's racist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie about it. I'm just going to tell the truth. Like, you know, all these people want to pretend why they don't like Will Ospreay. You don't like him because... You know, you think he did some shit. Just say it. Yeah. Well, that is if, if, if it was a dartboard of things like not to like about Will Osprey, you could probably hit something. That is the funny thing. He doesn't make it easy on himself. It's not like there's just one thing. There's like a multitude of things that this dude has done that make people not like him. So there yeah. is that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this is coming from the guy like, you know, one of the one of the worst wrestling interactions I ever had with was with Will Ospreay, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, he's him and Okada was not that good. <laughs> Three stars. <Fuck> off, mate. <laughs> Three and a half stars. Fuck off, Will. <laughs> uh, well, that is our wrestler of the month and match of the month for January. Uh, one piece of news that we should cover before we dive into the meat of today's show. Um, yesterday, New Japan Pro Wrestling announced Windy City Riot. On April 16th at the Odium Expo Center in Villa Park, Illinois, in the Chicago area. Tickets will go on sale this Friday, February 4th at 12 p.m. Central Time. And tickets will range from $25 to $299. So far, appearing on the show will be Blue Justice, Yuji Nagata, The Stone Pitbull, Tomohiro Ishii, Switchblade, Jay White, The Commonwealth Kingpin, Will Ospreay, Juice Robinson, David Finley, the Imperial Unit, Jeff Cobb. The current strong openweight champion, Filthy Tom Lawler. Mr. No Days Off, Fred Rosser. Brody King and Jonah. So, guys, what do we think about, uh, you know, big uh, major show coming here for New Japan in Chicago? Well, the first thing I'll say, I'm glad that they're doing a show in Chicago. It's a very hot territory. Obviously, uh, a lot of big shows have been held there the last year or so, especially with AEW and WWE. So, I don't know how that may or may not affect the uh, expectations with uh, New Japan, their ticket sales. But uh, they did a great job this past week on social media, just really building the anticipation and the uh, discussion and kind of getting buzz about what it was that they're going to announce, which, you know, to be honest, in the past, they haven't been the best at this normally. But uh, they did a really good job this week and had a lot of discussion going about them, which is something that they need to be doing. 
New Japan finally hitting the mid market. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not talking MJF, but MID, Midwest. So, like, uh, I feel like going to Chicago is a rite of passage for them. There's a lot of tickets being sold in Chicago uh, between uh, WWE and AEW. New Japan might as well dip their toe in that water. A lot of hardcores there come from all over the Midwest. Nice place, uh, nice big airport they can all fly to. And, um, yeah, nothing but a great idea here. Yeah, and uh, our friend of the show, Chris Samsa, gave us a little scoop here. Says that they are setting up the Odium for about two thousand two hundred eighteen uh, fans. So, you know, not a, not a super huge show. Uh, you know, about twenty two hundred people. So, I think they should be easily be able to sell that out, especially in that Chicago market. They're bringing over some of the the main guys uh, from New Japan, like Ishii and Nagata. Uh, you're going to have Will Ospreay on the show, uh, Jeff Cobb. There's a lot of big stars, all the big guys from Strong, Philly Tom. We got Brody King, even though he's you know signed with AEW now, he's still going to be doing uh, New Japan dates, so that's awesome. So looking forward to seeing what a, a card's going to look like and what kind of uh, matches we're going to get here. Yeah, I'm excited for these um, you know larger specials. The last one we had was Battle in the Valley, which I think had a, a few different things going against it from scheduling and production issues and stuff like that but um you know on paper looked to be a really big show the resurgence show that we attended last year was obviously very you know that was an incredible event and uh i'm glad that they're kind of quarterly doing these shows i wish that they would kind of get away from the pay-per-view model and kind of focus more on maybe their partnership with access maybe uh you know featuring this stuff on new japan world to up their subscriptions and kind of play the long game instead of the short but uh yeah, I think it's very exciting. And the one thing I've noticed, we've had a lot of discussion on this podcast about why doesn't New Japan run more in the States? Why don't they bring guys, you know, from Japan over, yada, yada, yada. If you notice the names that are coming over, it's Nagata, Ishii, you know, Will Ospreay. It's all people that have in the past been to the States recently. And I, I, for a second there, I was wondering, I was like, why aren't they sending like, you know, I don't know, Abushi or someone like that. And I think it might have something to do with the travel restrictions. Maybe the guys they're sending are the only guys that they can send because maybe it has something to do with the visas and the people that have been approved in the past versus some of the other bigger names that probably haven't renewed since the whole entire, you know, lockdowns and pandemic started. Yeah, that that is a good point. So I guess we'll have to see um, going forward if they are going to bring, because Okada was here for Battle in the Valley. We've got to see you. I guess it all depends on what's happening in Japan in April. Um, I know that they have announced the, the return of the Hyper Battle Tour that's going to be happening in April. Um, that's going to be post-New Japan Cup, so I'm sure there's going to be some kind of big title match coming out of that with the winner of the New Japan Cup challenging the champion. Um, so I'm sure some big, some big guys will have to stay around for some tours in April. Yeah, I guess that's true. I didn't think of the whole Okada thing. That probably pokes a little bit of a hole in my theory there. I mean, there's other guys like Naito um, and some of the other like Shingo guys like that who have not come over yet. So that that could be. That's what I was wondering. Like, why haven't they sent any of those guys? But who knows? I guess you know we'll see what happens as time goes on. Yeah. Well, now we're gonna transition into the the main uh, talking point of today's show. Oh, one thing. Yep. Um, Rich, how much yeah. you like my logo for this show that I sent out via the Twitter? Uh, are you talking about the Okada outline one with Naito and Tanahashi on the two sides? No, no, no. The one where I took Starcade 87 and I just put the line mark head over it. You know what? The um the Chi Town Heat thing, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> 
they're like they're like where do you guys think we're gonna be and i like i i tweeted out a picture of the literally the starcade 87 logo just with like the new japan line mark us lo- like logo or whatever and i was like this is what this is what y'all running <laughs> exactly. yeah. you know that show like is one of the shows that like helped bankrupt uh jcp Crockett. yeah jim crockett like so you know, you're like, oh, it's a rite of passage. I was like, not for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in this day and age. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about uh, the Rainmaker Shock here. So we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary, uh, February 12, 2012. So we're a few days away from the 10-year anniversary of the Rainmaker Shock. So we decided to, to go back in the archives, and actually, we decided to start back with the the Young Lion match that happened in 2010 at New Japan Ism, where Okada faced Tanahashi in his last match before Excursion. So we'll start there and work our way to Wrestle Kingdom Seven, um, in the kind of the first kind of section of this huge rivalry that has expanded uh, over a decade now. So. We'll start back at the beginning, like I mentioned. So, New Japan Circuit 2010, New Japan ISM, January 30th, 2010, semi main event of the show. We have the ace, Hiroshi Tanahashi, facing off against a young lion, Kazuchika Okada. Guys, what were your, your thoughts on this first matchup here in this rivalry? But before we get to that, I just love that it's New Japan ISM. <laughs> <laughs> If you guys don't know, like we've uh, we've taken in our like group chats to uh, just adding ism to everything. Like whenever we want to like have something that just represents what we're like trying to define, we'll just add ism to it. And then yes. uh, and then it became like Jeff Hardy jumping off shit. And yeah, then, you know, you know the, the ism, the, ism. <laughs> the finger guns. Yeah, yeah, the, the hand signal. That does. Every, everyone Jeff listening, ism. take your take your uh, you know your ring and your pinky, put them down, and then. <laughs> Point with the other two fingers and, and, and look at your look at your uh, hands. Right there. <laughs> you you know what I'm talking about. Do the ism. Do it well. I, I would be shocked if there's anyone listening to this that didn't know about the Jeff Hardy hand signal. The ism. <laughs> <laughs> New Japanism. That's hilarious. It, like they literally like leaned into the like Inokiism shit, but just took Inoki out of the picture. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, so I mean, what were you guys' thoughts of this like uh, initial outing between Tanahashi and Okada here? Man, um, so I, so I think it is the perfect outline of what they their rivalry will become. Like if you think about a coloring book, right? Um, you have to draw those black lines first before you can color it in with mm. colors. And this match was a lot of those black lines being drawn, the chemistry, the uh, almost like detest, like detestation. I don't know if that's a real word for each <laughs> other. Um, oh, it's Okada's, a real word. I make up words every week. Right. Okada's full arrogance on display. Tanahashi's arrogance on display. And if you watch this with modern eyes, you can talk yourself into thinking they knew where they were going all along with this thing. Um, I thought this like, you know, like I think in, I, I've got a couple things that make up a great rivalry here. And um, I would say uh, establishing that anyone can win. Obviously it's a young lion match. So we haven't established that yet. Uh, the contrast in age or competitive style or their look in general, their experience or diff- come from different walks of life. 
subverting expectations, classic performances for the biggest prizes eligible, uh, whoever's the quote unquote loser having an argument to why they were really the best and the real life elements of the rivalry. We were seeing the transition in uh, both New Japan storytelling and from a shoot sense from Tanahashi to Okada. And you can't tell me Tanahashi wasn't legitimately competing and going, hey, man, fuck this guy. I'm better than this guy. And I'm going to show it. <laughs> um, and this like match is just like, if you watch it, like, I, I, people at the time, I probably, I would be interested to hear uh, what they thought of this because I think it's really interesting watching it now. You can see it. Okada is Okada literally from day one. Um, just imagine that he had colorful gear on and you would see this is like a stripped <laughs> down version of that. And he's sitting on the ropes where he's um, got his back to Tanahashi, uh, the height of disrespect. It was all there. Yeah. Um, there's quite a bit that I like about this, um, you know, just to add a little bit. And you did a great job there, Rich. But to add a little bit of background, this was um, Kazushiko Okada's final match in New Japan proper before he was leaving for excursion. Now, um, you know, even though, you know, we get a lot of uh, praise for this podcast because of the amount of knowledge that we have about the product and everything, there's a lot we still don't know. And I mean, you know, there was a time where you didn't get to watch every single young lion have as many numerous matches on every road to show as we do nowadays. So, you know, I can't sit back and say that I know exactly how they're portraying that generation or class of uh, young lions on a consistent basis, but um, comparing it to what we've seen in the past and what we see regularly, this match does seem to stand out quite a bit, not just for the fact that it was Okada's final match, but many of the things that Rich alluded to the, um, the broad strokes outline of a future feud between the ace Tanahashi and potentially Okada. And there were so many times where Okada just was very brash and very cocky and arrogant. Uh, I think the thing that we all take away from it was the, the entrance scene where Okada is sitting on the ropes with his back towards Tanahashi, paying him no attention as he makes his grand entrance into the arena which is something that, like, um, you know, it's the height of disrespect. And it's, like, it's so much so that, like, Tanahashi, like, looks taken aback and he, like, he, like, does a gesture like he's going to punch Okada in the back of the head because he's, like, so, like, annoyed with this punk kid, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who would dare to do this. And all the um, mannerisms that Okada, and, like, shows a bravado and he tries to steal signature moves from Tanahashi and the, the match goes, like, 13 minutes and some change. So, I mean, it's not, like, a... A little squash i mean this one got some time uh, it's not a classic but it is the groundwork for what would become okada and tanahashi the other thing too is considering where tanahashi was at that point in time this is just days removed from wrestle kingdom um let's see that would have been five at the time i believe and he had just defeated um goshi ozaki in the dome in a match that was billed as ace versus ace, you know? So, I mean, like, and at this point, Tanahashi's already four IWGP title reigns deep into his career. He's already headlined the dome. You know, he's beaten defenders from Noah. Like, he's the man. And then you got skinny Okada in black trunks with black hair. Just and that giving, face. And, and, and this <laughs> scowl on his face, like, he doesn't give a fuck. And you're like, who is this? Who is this skinny punk kid? Think, you know, and it does make you wonder. Did they always know that within just two years, 
they were going to run this shit right back and it was going to be this legendary feud or was it maybe more so they were just laying seeds to see what might blossom later on down the road and it all just became fortuitous it's, it's hard to know but um the match is awesome jeremy what were your thoughts yeah, this was great just watching back on this. And, you know, first thing that I noticed was, obviously, like we mentioned, Josh, you know, we're in a time period now where we're seeing all the Lion matches, and we kind of know the familiar uh, song of the, the Young Lion March that they have now, and they usually have just the New Japan logo as their kind of Titantron video. The thing I noticed here, obviously, there was different music, so I'm not sure if this was the Young Lion music back in that time period, or if Okada just had special music, even as a young lion, because I noticed also on the, the Tron video, his name was on the Tron, and so there was, there was like a little like video for him. So I'm wondering, again, like during that time period, did young lions have their own music and their own their names on their video, or is this something special that was done for Okada? Was he a young lion, or was he a quote-unquote young lion? <laughs> right. Um, and, yeah, just, just how cocky he was, like you guys mentioned, with his back to Tanahashi and... Just guys mentioned the, the the groundwork of the Okada character. The, there's the the senton spot where he goes on the the mid rope and he goes for the Tanahashi senton. He he taunts Tanahashi. He does like the ace pose and it's just like, dude, like you don't really you don't see young lions doing that. You know we've right. we've seen several young lions in the last uh, you know four or five years of doing this show who have you know gone through the system and have graduated and had their last matches and like. We don't see like any of these guys really taking shots like this and taunting and kind of almost sort of developing a character already. And the best way to kind of describe what's happening here with, with Okada is I feel like you can tell that he watched pro wrestling. Like there's a certain mm-hmm. like mannerisms, certain things he did. Like you can tell like if you are a fan of pro wrestling, and Josh, you've mentioned this, like when you're training at the side dojo with Matt Seidel, sometimes you'll do a, a little thing or a little taunt after something, and Matt will be like, Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. He's like you know, how did you don't do that? And you're like, well, I you know I've been watching wrestling for 30 years. Like, I know what the guys are like do, and I feel like well, that's what Okada was doing here. Like, he's he, he clearly he's watched wrestling. I know he he was in uh in, he was in Mexico before he went to New Japan Dojo, but you can just kind of tell like he kind of just had a grasp for for wrestling and where he should be and what he should be doing, and just his mannerisms, the way he moved around the ring, the subtle taunting, um, the, the facial expressions. Like, you can just tell like this guy had it all set and just needed some more experience to become a superstar. Yeah, man. Like there are young lions now and th- that we've seen or that are barely like, uh, like they're afraid to look you in the eye. Like, <laughs> like, they, like they're barely, uh, you know, uh, you know, ready to, uh, really fire up by themselves. Like, but this guy, Okada, like this is a fucking superstar. Like, it, like no question. Like anyone watching this through modern eyes right now, you will see exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And the nice thing too, is you can find this match uh, pretty easily on YouTube. It's uh, for some weird reason, it's not on new Japan world, but it is on new Japan's official uh, YouTube channel. So you can find it there. Um, One thing I'll, I'll say this to kind of um, lay the groundwork for for the whole discussion that we're going to be having. And it's something that I didn't come up with this on my own. It's not my own analysis, but it is something that I've heard so many other, um, because there's a lot of coverage of this very formative feud in New Japan's boom period. I mean, you got the show buckle videos. There's some other great video uh, content on YouTube and different articles and blogs. I mean, there's a lot out there. So, I mean, you could even look at that stuff as sort of like content, you know, uh, companion pieces with what we're doing here on this episode. But, 
one thing that they all pointed out is that the feud between Okada and Tanahashi, when you boil it down to its essence in the early years, it's Tanahashi's experience versus Okada's skill. And you see that laid out here. Just like Rich said, Okada is very prodigious, and Jeremy alluded, uh, alluded to it too. There's certain things that he just has. He has that star appeal. He has that quality. He has those skills. They're on display here in this match. But his skills and his, and his experience are nowhere near the level of Hiroshi Tanahashi, who's still the fucking man. And, you know, Tanahashi kind of eats his lunch. I mean, Okada puts up a valiant effort, but he's nowhere near anywhere near the levels of where Tanahashi is at this point. You know what I mean? Right. And um, there is a point, though, and it's interesting where Ta- where Okada starts using his drop kicks, which is obviously what Young Lions are known for, and also what Okada is so skilled at. And Tanahashi witnesses that, and he does the drop kick to the leg. And then he starts doing the dragon screws, and then he starts putting him in the cloverleaf. And I'm like, already Tanahashi is laying the groundwork for what he's going to do for the next decade in all of his time <laughs> wrestling Okada. He's like, I see that leg. You got some long ass legs. You like to jump. You like to kick. Fuck your knees. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's almost a game of chicken. It's like how long can Tanahashi's experience stall out the natural growth of Okada? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, I've always looked at these two as sort of like a Federer and the doll rivalry where Federer's the fucking man, and then all of a sudden, uh, some dude just starts whooping his ass in his prime and exceeds him, which would be Nadal taking over Federer, which would be Okada taking over Tanahashi. But in most people's minds, you know, Federer is that guy um, that just people just love, just like Tanahashi. Um, but yeah, like it's 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 a really beautiful story. People say, you know, there are, there are beauty in there's beauty in things in pro wrestling. This is a beautiful story, like. Uh, from the start <laughs> to finish. Yeah. And, and one thing like I mentioned earlier, like this it was the semi-main event of this show, which, you know, you alluded to, Rich, like, you know, was this all kind of planned out from the beginning? And you look at the placement, like, we've again, we've seen several young line departures over the last five years. We just recently saw Suji Yamura. They, they wrestled Okada. They wrestled Naito. They were wrestling all top stars. And neither of those guys got a semi-main event on, on their go-away matches. And so Okada right. here, he's getting this semi-main event. I know it's a New Japan is. I'm not sure kind of how big that tour was in that in that era, but it's still a big deal. A young line in a semi-main event I, I, against the ace. I did a little research. So I mean, it, what this seemed like to me it seemed like, for instance, like one of those uh, um, like Kazuna Road tours where there's bigger shows on the tour than smaller shows on the tour. This probably would have been one of the smaller shows, but it wasn't like quite road to level they, there were singles matches there were big feuds you know that were happening on this card so i mean this probably would have been like your you know hinokuni level you know in modern terms it's probably the same level as like a hinokuni or something like that you yeah. know what i mean or yeah. a cork and hall road to show that's probably what it was basically equivalent to so, like, after this match, like, Tanahashi's kind of in a feud with Yano at the time, and I thought this was pretty interesting, and I started letting my head cannon go. <laughs> so, uh, I had a question. I was like, what if Toriyano didn't attack Tanahashi? So, the to set the stage, uh, Tanahashi wins. We're talking, shaking hands, and, you know, he's 
speaking to him, but you know, we don't know how much he actually said. But um, Yano attacks Tanahashi from behind with a chair. They clear the ring, big schmas. So my question is, what if Yano didn't attack Tanahashi as he was trying to talk to Okada after their young lion match? What if Tanahashi didn't get out the words that could have saved his ace show? <laughs> he could have said what? something to Okada that made him never want to challenge him or disrespect him. The entire so, saga, so... birthed by Toriano. <laughs> like, he could have said something that demoralized him so bad that he never came back. Right. He, or, like, you know, when he did come back, he would uh, try to, you know, be under Tanahashi's wing rather than straight disrespect him. Right. Jo- join Hantai and, you know, be you know, the second to Tanahashi. Right. Marty McFly's own. We have That's to recast funny. this whole thing. That's funny. Yeah. And for those of you who are wondering, you know, Tanahashi feuded with uh, Yano, a very different Yano in 2010, you know, let me tell you. So, but um, I think that pretty much wraps it up for the first, you know, chapter in this tale and uh that's kind of gonna fast forward us to uh 2012 and i guess that story starts i don't know jeremy how you want to do this you want me to kind of give the recap for wrestle kingdom six yeah go ahead and do that oh and you know what that means that means that this past this was wrestle kingdom four from 2010 that makes more sense okay so you know um wrestle kingdom six um okada makes his return to the company after a horrendously terrible, terrible excursion in North America with New Japan's at the time partner, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, TNA, where um, they they don't know what to do with Okada. They job him out. They put him on the C-shows. They they make him the sidekick for Samoa Joe and put a mask on him, call him Okado. Yeah, super racist gimmick. I mean, you've got a Japanese man playing a cosplay of a Chinese you know, television uh, stars gimmick. It, it's just fucked up, the whole thing. Um, and, yeah, so then they... they and it, that's so horrendous that they literally end their relationship with Impact and are only now <laughs> starting to work with them again. Hey, man, they um, could have had Okada going in a stall and, like, taking a shit on national television. Or they could have had him, you know, gimmicked up and pushed as the next hot thing, like, you know, Jim Crockett did with Muto. Who knows, you know? Yeah. Right. But uh, he comes back, and, um, you know, the people are glad he's back, but they just don't really know how to take him. He has this new character, the Rainmaker. He's, you know, he just, his hair looks like, a, his hair at Wrestle Kingdom 6 literally looks Donald Trump-esque. I mean, it's a mess. <laughs> and um, they put him in a match with Yoshihashi, another young lion returning from excursion in Mexico. They go out to silence in the dome. They have a six-minute match that literally just is crickets. Nobody responds to it. The whole thing is, you know, just pretty much terrible. Okada hits uh, Yoshihashi with Rainmaker, and it's not the Rainmaker that you would come to know, but it's this soft, weak version where he does, like, a sit-out clothesline. It, it doesn't even look like a finish. And then he beats, uh, you know, Yoshihashi, and everyone's like, well, that was weird. Later in the night, Tanahashi is in the middle of his fifth IWGP heavyweight title reign. He's 10 defenses in, so he has tied, at this point, Yuji Nagata's all-time defense record. He defeats uh, Minoru Suzuki in a classic match in the main event of the Dome, setting the all-time record at 11. He's at the height of his power, and at the end of that match, while he's getting the trophies, the accolades, and everything like that, all of a sudden, Kazushika Okada comes out in a shirt that doesn't look like it wants to fit on him, with hair that, like, just you couldn't believe. His face is puffy. 
and he comes out makes a challenge and um tanahashi is kind of like looking at him like dude you beat yoshihashi in a terrible six minute match like i don't think you uh you know know what you're doing but for whatever reason maybe it's cockiness maybe it's arrogance but he accepts the uh you know returning you know young lions challenge and uh reminds him that the iwgp title level is very far away from him and they set the the match for new beginning and uh that kind of brings us to where we're going so yeah. like the i think the worst thing about okada is you know we we watch him essentially any other time in his career he looks grand he looks rich the worst thing about okada was he looked broke yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, especially for you know somebody being called the rainmaker, <laughs> well, like he his, he had an eyebrow situation figured out. Like Josh said, his his hair was just a mess. Um, he he was like someone that had either inherited a bunch of money and didn't know what to do with it yet, and he was just you know trying to put something flashy on, but didn't know how to quite you know freak it like that. Dude, um, his shirt, like he was his shirt looked like years. one of those. It looked like one of those shirts that you would buy at like JC Penney where like the tie comes in the package with the shirt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> oh. It comes with a tie and a pocket square, both. Uh, before we talk about the match, I did uh, pull some notes from the observers from this time period. And so uh, one I want to read before we talk about the match. Dave says, I don't know that this is going to happen, but the plan when they shot the angle at Tokyo Dome was to lead to Kazuchika Okada winning the IWGP title from Hoshi Tanahashi. Since Tanahashi had already set the record, and they wanted to create Okada as a new main eventer. The problem is that Okada didn't get over in his challenge in his challenge and in his match. Okada gets really nervous in new situations, and that's not a good position for a world champion who is relatively early in his career. So back then, Dave kind of had, I guess, the scoop of, you know, this was kind of the plan to, to kind of christen this new upstar Kazuchika Okada and have him beat Tanahashi here at New Beginning. Well, he's also said in Observers in the past that um, it was always a known thing for those that were in the know back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, that when they sent Okada away for excursion, he was going to be the next ace. Like, And just like uh, you guys kind of said during that match, anyone with a brain could see it. I mean, he was tall. He was athletic. He had good looks, good smile. He had the charm, the bravado. Anyone that youth and the youth, yeah, and you could just end the skills. So I mean, he he was already he's what they like to call a blue chipper, and (laughs) that that kind of makes what happened with TNA even worse because it's not like TNA didn't know what he might be or the importance he held to New Japan Pro Wrestling. They told them hey, we're sending you our most prized guy, treat him well, teach him, and then they're like, all right, okay, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but Dave has always maintained that, even going back as far as like 09, 2010, 08, all that, they knew what Okada was going to be. So some of this, what, it's not outside of the realm of imagination to think that they knew what the plans were or that when he came back that they might have planned for him to win the title, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about it. So February 12, 2012, the new beginning IWGP title match. Tanahashi is defending against Kazuchika Okada. What do you guys think about this matchup here? Yeah, man. Um, it feels like when you start seeing somebody that's like a uh, like a champion, right? And 
then they realize they're in way too deep with somebody that is not on their level um, or wasn't, didn't think that was on their level. Um, I mean like Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so check this out. So like um, M- NBA fans will appreciate this. So when LeBron was 22 years old, they were a bit head of, ahead of schedule. They were going up against the Detroit Pistons, Josh's Detroit Pistons in the yeah. Eastern Conference Finals. All of a sudden it just like, you know, like no one really expected, like they were like the Cavs were ahead of schedule and LeBron, they were ahead of schedule. They shouldn't even been there. Then they just upset them in the conference finals and make the finals. And the thing was like the Pistons with all their experience, all their guy, all their toughness just ran into a prodigy. And that's what happened here. Like Okada showed up in tremendous condition, totally different look than he did the previous month. It's like he went in the gym uh, and dropped like, like 20 pounds damn near uh, the Okada where we said didn't look like he had it figured out visually had it figured out visually a month later it, like it's it's the biggest like um, it's like it's a complete shock yeah it's a, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a complete shock like hold on y- y'all knew something like that that's what I what I think <laughs> about this and the Rainmaker he hits him with uh, compared to the Yoshihashi one it's night and day it's like I'm blasting everyone out of new japan's past into new japan's future you know what it's like it's like in all those like teen comedies or dramas where like the romantic comedies where like you have the nerdy ugly girl or guy that like they do the flashback scenes and they're like totally fucked up but then they like fast <laughs> forward to the future and like you know they're bad as you know they're bad now and they're not that character that they used to be and everyone's shocked you know um that they they've dropped the weight, they've their face cleared up, and they don't wear glasses, and they got a new hairdo, and they wear stylish clothes, and it's like, oh my god, I had no idea that Sandra Bullock was hot, you know. <laughs> that that's what they did with Okada, you know. They they never been kissed him. They he's not Josie Grossy anymore, is what they did to this man. And um, you know what's also interesting, Rich, is like you keep bringing up different sports analogies, you know, and when I. And you and I have talked off the air about this a little bit, and I try to think about it. I'm like, what pro wrestling analogies are there for this? Because, I mean, how hard is the story of the aging top ace of a company, you know, fending off the challenge of a rising star that's got his number? Like, how hard is that story to tell? You would think that that's a story that's been told a million times. But really, when you think about it, I can't think of very many times in modern history where this has happened. You know what the problem is? It's because you can't really find someone that's as giving a star as Tanahashi is. Um, that's what it is. That is that's the point I was gonna make. No one's willing to give the way Tanahashi gave. Like you could, like you could make a I, an argument I think that would fall apart because it never like like Ric Flair and Sting maybe. That's the that's the only other one I was gonna literally we're on the same wavelength. That's the only other one I can think of. And it we still we did not discuss a... this before the show <laughs> anything like that. This is just chemistry, everybody. It's it's the only thing I can think of that's even kind of similar, you know, like or at least for maybe say Western fans. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not thinking of anything else. I mean. You look. You think back to like the Attitude Era. There was not really. There was no really old guys that were holding the belts. They didn't really do that story there. Or even like in the the Ruth of the Gresha era, like there was none, nothing really. None of that really. It's like 
like Brock well, won the belt pretty early, but there was no one he was just going back and forth with that was like Tanahashi. Like, I'm sorry, the Undertaker doesn't count. Uh, no, because most of the time these top guys protect their spots, you know, or they go away one or the other, you know, they go to greener pasture or they, uh, how many guys have gotten a clue the way Tanahashi is that, that have said, if I make this guy great, but I look great doing it, we'll both be great. And then I can stick around even fucking longer. Like, yep. you know, and it seems like only Ric Flair knew to do that, you know? Hmm. Hiroshi right. Tanahashi, Ric Flair, you know, two of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And Josh, yeah, it, it, it kind of reminds me of what you said earlier when we were, we were talking about the the Windy City riot with um, New Japan kind of taking the, the short game of doing pay per view instead of the long game and getting people to World or doing something on Access. And I feel that's kind of the same way with wrestlers trying to hold their spot. The thing, the thing about the short game, like man, I need to be on top right now. I need to protect my spot. Like I got to make sure I look good as a star and all. This. I got to win. Um, but they're missing the long game of creating a new star to rival with and also looking, you mentioned Josh, looking good in that process and creating somebody you can draw money with. I mean, look well, at how and many and possibly beat when it's the right time. Right. Right. Like, like the rock would do these type of things. Right. I mean, look at this, this rivalry here. Tanahashi. Like, Look how many singles matches they've had over the last 10 years. And they, they all draw. They're all big deals. Neither guy gets hurt from losing or winning or from the draws that they've done. Um, they create a new star, a hot feud, and something they can always go back to uh, to create hype and buzz, and it's always a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I could wax poetic on this all day and talk about all the benefits of it because there's and, – and, you know, how many other bookers and, and companies are short-sighted and missing it, but I just thought that that was funny. Like, there's not – very many other analogies that you can think of that are similar to this when the story is so natural as time itself, you know, there's going to be stars that age out and there's going to be young up and comers that come for their spot. And you would think that this was a tale old as time in wrestling, but it's really, really not, which is, is so crazy. Um, getting to the match though. I mean, one thing that I love about it, you know, Rich, you talked about how Okada came in and, and everything with him. Let's talk about Tanahashi. This man came in arrogant as fuck. I mean, obviously he's always jovial and he always plays to the crowd, but I mean, this man came out, he's playing air guitar, he's spinning around. That's <laughs> a game. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's making sure he pats every single person's hand when he comes in. He's strutting. Like, you would think that he has not a care in the world. And to him, he probably thought you know, in the kayfabe sense, he didn't think he had anything in front of him. I mean, it's an easy night out. It's Okada from 2010. And, you know, let's just imagine Hiroshi Tanahashi maybe decided, you know what, that kid was pretty good. Let's keep an eye on him. Turn on TNA Impact. Let's see what's going on there. Oh, that's not it, Chief. Turn that shit off. <laughs> the fuck I got to worry about Nokato for, you know? And, and, like, it's just so funny, like, how arrogant he was going into this match and then how it was completely his undoing because he had no game plan he had not studied anything he was in no way prepared for what was about to be what they like to call the rainmaker shock because it was one of if not the biggest upset in the history of new japan for wrestling and you know a returning young lion coming back in his second match and beating 
arguably the greatest of all time in the company's history. It, it's it's fucking crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of you know Rocky three in the beginning uh, elements to this. Oh like, yeah, like, I didn't. Like, I can I can imagine Tanahashi in the in the gym working out with, with the music and you know, <laughs> he's, been, he's been going through the you know the the setups you know quote unquote. And... The the closest thing I can think of is like in wrestling terms is like maybe Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam against John Cena, mm-hmm. like but even that isn't quite the same because we knew what to expect with Brock Lesnar. We just maybe didn't expect he could do that to John Cena. But very similar elements were like this was a shock to people where they're like, oh fuck, Okada's for real. <laughs> yeah, and. Man, like you mentioned, Tanahashi just comes in here so arrogant and just like, you know, I, I am the ace. Like, I, I'm going to, you know, wash this young boy away and move on. You know, uh, Tanahashi, who's in the middle of a, a 13-month title reign right now, just, you know, defending the belt left and right, having these epic title matches. Uh, and now, now here comes Okada. Um, and Okada, very cocky. But he almost had the right to be cocky because he kind of he's been studying Tanahashi. Like he knew all his big moves, all his big spots. He had the counters ready. Um, it's like he kind of he had the match won even before he stepped in the ring. Yeah, just to put this in perspective, guys, remember when when Okada was on his twelve defense series and he had to eventually surpass Tanahashi, and you know have more title defenses than him. What if after 12, it wasn't Kenny Omega that beat him? What if it was Great Okan that came back? Now, I know it's not quite the same thing, but think about this. What if it was Great Okan that came back and then beat him in his next pay-per-view title defense? That's what we're talking about here. Would you think for any like amount of time going into that match that Kazushika Okada had any reason to be fearful or you know, worried about great Okan. I'm sure most people watching this thought like, okay, they want to make Okada star. They want to put him in a big spotlight. They're going to give him like this big monumental. They probably thought it was like the sting player thing. Like Okada will get made by Tanahashi by looking good in defeat his first time out. They had no idea he was going to fuck this man's life up. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, go ahead, Jeremy. No, so yeah, Okada wrecked Tanahashi in this match. Uh, <laughs> knocked out his two front teeth. This man was bleeding from the mouth. Uh, we, we see Okada, you know, on the tombstone pile drivers. Tombstone that man out in the crowd on the cement. Like, Okada was jacking this man up. Yeah, man. And I think we should speak to some of the shock and the, um, the outrage that surrounded this match in the wrestling community at the time because i've only heard stories about it um and i've always just heard people were freaking out they were they were pissed they thought gato lost his fucking mind um, <laughs> they're just everything like i just you know i read about the stuff that happened before i was watching new japan and it's uh it was really babe ruth calling this shot like with yeah. with mm. this as a booker yeah. it's like if this doesn't work out like we don't get the whole last decade there's some notes here from jeremy i'm gonna let him read them uh from the observer and i'm sure that speaks to what the general consensus and thoughts and reactions were in japan at the time but you know on the message boards here in the states yes very much exactly what you were just describing rich i mean people couldn't believe it because i mean 
here you have Tanahashi, the most beloved, most successful, you know, the guy that literally single-handedly carried the company on his back through the dark ages, saved them from the brink of destruction financially, you know, made them relevant, had all these classic matches, made all this money, brought them back, you know, to relevancy. And then they bring in this newcomer and have him beat him. And, you know, other people didn't, you know, there's that whole saying, like, let it, let's see it play out. Give it some time, you know? And oftentimes that's applied to like WWE where nothing plays out. It's booked week to week and shit doesn't matter from one week to the next. But like in New Japan, especially classic Gato booking, it always does. And so, I mean, you know, I don't, I think a lot of them were short sighted and not understanding where this was leading or what it was going to be. They were unaware that before them was greatness and they had no idea because they could only see Tanahashi's star. They didn't realize the shining star that uh, Okada was going to be. One thing too, Jeremy, you, you talked about um, Okada with the, uh, the tombstones. That was the thing that kind of won this match for him was the constant and persistent, sustained, devastating neck um, attacks that he had. You know, it started with drop kicks, and then he took uh, Tanahashi to the outside and used the guardrail to bend his neck backwards. And I don't know if at the time that was a known thing that, like, maybe Tanahashi had a bad neck, but I have to kind of imagine that maybe that was the narrative because he just completely focused his entire attack on his neck. He started breaking out all his Yave maneuvers to uh, clinch the neck, and then later on all of his impact moves you think about like the neck breakers the heavy rain the tombstones on the outside and on the inside uh that one standing neck breaker where he looked i don't even know what that's called but you know where he looks like he's setting up for a uh uh what's i don't even know what the move is do you know what i'm talking about uh you're talking about the the hangman's neck breaker yeah is that the one where he drapes them over his knee uh, God, do you guys know what I'm talking about? I, I know what you're talking about. I don't know the name though. Yeah. It's like he has them kind of like I don't want to. He say does it in every him, single big but, match. He puts yeah. he, he he grabs them like he's gonna do a uh, Alabama slam, and then he grabs their head and he drapes it over his leg and he breaks their neck on the leg. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure where that like like an air raid crash neck breaker. Yeah, it looks like the air raid crash. How do we after all these years, how do we not have a name for that move? It's like one of his top signatures. Isn't that weird? It is, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, he does that neck breaker. He does the tombstones. And literally, this is like... And then the other thing, too, is every single time Tanahashi is going to come back, whether it's, you know, the Big Show taste slaps, whether it's the, uh, uh, you know, whatever different signatures it is that he has, the sentons, the uh, freaking sling blade, all this stuff. Like, Okada scouted it, and he cuts him off the whole time. And so this match, when you talk about quote-unquote star ratings, it might not be the most back-and-forth affair or the, the highest drama match that they had, but it sets a precedence where Tanahashi is trying desperately to use all of his big attacks and get back into the match, and he has no specific game plan. He just wants to use Old Faithfuls. And Okada's already, like, developed a fences against each and every single one of them to where the comeback never happens the rally never happens he just keeps them at bay keeps attacking the neck and then finally out of nowhere a fucking rainmaker and it's not the rainmaker from the tokyo dome it's the one we know today and it's devastating and then one two and when that when red shoes hand hits for the three you start hearing women 
scream and shriek. Like I had, I couldn't believe my ears. I went and played it back like three times. There's literally people screaming in the crowd. We hear like Meltzer talk about like people crying in the uh, audience at like these other famous matches. Well, this was different. People were screaming. It's, it's like a bizarre scene. <laughs> yeah, dude, this crowd did not want Okada to win. They were firmly behind Tanahashi. They were booing Okada. Like anytime he got control, uh, any of his little cocky taunts or mannerism, they booed and booed Okada. And they were, you know, getting behind Tanahashi. And every time Tanahashi would make a comeback, the crowd would come up and be so excited. And they, they wanted to ace, you know, get rid of this young punk. But yeah, you mentioned that, that you know, soul crushing uh, Rainmaker. Tanahashi soul left his body and got the three <laughs> count. Um, and yeah, the crowd was just, they were, they were stunned. And they were, it was like they went through like all stages of grief and it, at one time. Like they were, they were, they were sad, they were stunned, they were pissed. Like all this emotion was, it was happening at once for everybody. This is an NBA team coming into your arena and beating you by a comfortable 12 or 13 points, not blowing you out, <laughs> not beating you on a buzzer beater, but just thoroughly dominating you and, you know, pulling their starters a little early just to watch you guys, you know, struggle a little bit, but a comfortable win. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the fact that Tanahashi lasted as long as he did in the match was a testament to his toughness because it wasn't onslaught. Like it was big move after big move after big move the whole time. Yeah. And have some notes here from a day from the observer uh, after this match. So he says, Kazuchika Okada went from being a masked character off a comic book and 1960s U.S. television show to major world champion in a short period of time. On the aptly named New Japan New Beginnings pay-per-view on February 12th at Osaka Fitsuro Gym, Okada ended the 13-month IWGP heavyweight title reign of 2012, or 2011 Wrestler of the Year, Hiroshi Tanahashi. The show was New Japan's first under new management, but the title change was something planned a while back. The general reaction in Japan was negative to the change. Okada looked pretty green, even though the match itself turned out to have the feel of an excellent world championship match due to Tanahashi. <laughs> when combining that dynamic ring work with main event charisma, Tanahashi is probably the closest thing to a complete package in today's pro wrestling. Business had improved with him on top, and the Osaka show drew a turnaway crowd, 6,200, even though he was facing a challenger with no name value. There's very little that works well in modern wrestling, and when you've got a guy on top who is carrying the ball, it's not, it's not the time to replace him. And even if he's been the champion for a long time, Tanahashi who captured the title from Satoshi Kojima on January 4th, 2011, had already set the IWGP title record for most defenses in one reign with his win over Minoru Suzuki on the January 4th Tokyo Dome show being his 11th. Okay, well, I've, I've got to disagree very heavily with Dave's uh, statements there. And not, you know, obviously hindsight's 2020, but I mean, this is specifically the exact time that you need to cash out on a world champion is when there is no further story to tell, there's nowhere else for them to go, and they're at the very, very height of their power because that's the most compelling time to do a title change like that. Um, I mean, unless you have some other major, major big business on the horizon, you know, um, then maybe I would say, no, don't do it. But what else were they going to do with Tanahashi over the next course of year? And keep in mind, Tanahashi be, ends up being the 2013 Wrestler of the Year, by the way. Um, so it's not like business. In fact, it boosted business to, to make this switch. And it also made a new star. And it it's pretty much the move that uh, 
saved their business for the next decade. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's the, that's the time when you, for instance, like, uh, you know, GCW just had this really, really, really big show, right? And that's probably the height of what they're going to do. Now's the time, if you have stock in them, hypothetically speaking, that you cash out. That's where Tanahashi was. He was at the height of his power. This is where you start selling off that stock. You don't do it when he's on the decline. You do it when he's at the height of his power so that you can tell new stories and keep him fresh. You, you don't want to wait until, you know, two or three title defenses down the road. He beats Goto, he beats Naito, and he beats, you know, Kojima. And people are like, well, we've seen all this before. We've seen how that plays out with Okada. It's not optimal. Right. Yeah, and, and that's that's a really great point, Josh, because uh, like when a champion is on top and like this is, I think, the problem John Cena ran into a lot of times, like and then right. why his, you know, feuds with like CM Punk, like kind of felt like it had gravity to him because it was like they finally let somebody kind of come up to his level. And it's like you've got to disperse that that overness, you know, that, that mythical status to try to create new, new people. One last thing I want to point out before we move on to uh, the next part of the feud, you know, we discussed how out of character, out of place, everything seemed to be with Okada from the terrible match to his demeanor, his dress, his look, everything like that. And then he comes into this match looking like an entirely new man, and and all that and one you have to wonder was it that they were playing 3d chess and they planned all that shit from the very very get-go you know <laughs> now rich is you know rich is a co-host of one nation radio they're no uh strangers to conspiracy theories you know what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> but like did gato and and Okada come together and be like, we're going to put you in some raggedy ass clothes. We're going to give you a terrible haircut. You know, we're going to make you look like we don't know what the fuck we're doing with you. Because everything about that early uh, appearance of him screamed Master Watto to me Mm. for the modern fans. You know, it looked like a guy that had no confidence, that had no sense of character, that didn't know what the fuck was going on. And then then you turn around and you put him in your next pay-per-view and you put the belt on him. Were they literally were they trying to lull the fans and lull the character of Tanahashi into a sense of security so that they so that the shock would be even more effective? Or do you guys think it was just a sense that they really were trying to figure things out with him and it took a month for them to figure it out? And then and then we're off to the races. And maybe it was just coincidental that it all happened that way. I feel like it was all set up and there were <laughs> Like there were 38 days between the Tokyo Dome and the title change. Look at how Okada looks. I I damn near feel like they were like, all right, you've got like a say five week plan. Like you're gonna basically eat eat as clean as possible and train like a fucking madman. And the, just the difference in Okada's body. Like you can't tell me he was just like. You know, they were just laxadaisically going along and he was going to be that same person that showed up on January 4th and February 12th. Like he worked too hard. There's no way that um, that they went into this and just fell. But, but what it. about everything else? What about the hair? What about the dress? What about the terrible match? What about his facials and the demeanor? Like, was that all was that all part of the grift, too? I mean, I, I think so. I mean, 
I mean, you look at how everything was laid. I just think it's funny that you guys are bought into this idea so like easily. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm getting worked on this, like, and, and that's fine. But, but the thing is, if you look at the track record of Gato's work, and I'm not sure kind of where he was at booking wise as far as power at this time. But if you look back at his work, you, there's clear signs of long-term storytelling. You see him plant seeds, and we, you can see stuff that gets paid off a year, two years later. So to me, it's not completely out of left field to think that, all right, they have this game plan. I'm like, all right, Okada's coming back from excursion. We're going to send him out there against Yoshihashi. Six-minute, three-star match, horrible-looking finish. Okada's over very strong. Yeah, then we're going to have him challenge Tanahashi, look like crap, crappy haircut. Uh, this, this crappy shirt is, you know, just looking like, you know, a bum, like a Master Watto. Uh, but then we're going to flip the switch come February 12th, and these fans are not going to know what's going to hit them. The Tanahashi character is not going to know what hit them. Like, I feel like it. To me, like, like you're gonna get your real ring gear, you're right. gonna get your real ring jacket, and you're gonna come in and fucking kill your uh, physical condition, <laughs> and you're gonna basically prove it along the way in the in the tags leading up to it. Right. Well, yeah. I will tell you guys that I I watched the press conference that you know the, you know how they traditionally have a world champion press conference the day after Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. They had one of those. It's on World. I didn't understand any of it, but the gist of it is at the end of Tanahashi's remarks. Gato walks in with Okada, and I assume this was the moment where they revealed your boys with me, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. But Okada was still wearing that janky ass shit, and I'm like, <laughs> but and like he didn't cut a promo. He just walked into like the room and like put his feet up on the table and just like kind of pouted. And I was like, is he supposed to be looking cool or like arrogant or I don't know what's going on? And so it is such a stark contrast to what you see in February, where like. I'm willing to believe that maybe it was all designed or maybe it was just a happy coincidence. But regardless, putting all the backstage stuff aside, the storyline tells you a very different story. The story tells you where this guy set this man up. He made himself look one way and made him think that you're fighting someone who's just a, uh, a young and up-and-comer, happy-go-plucky, you know, wishful thinking, returning line, when in fact, he was fighting the genius of all genius wrestlers, someone who was the top prodigy in the history of wrestling, someone whose skills were almost, at this point, equal to the all-time GOAT experience that Tanahashi had, and it's only 2012. So, like, it's fucking crazy. Tanahashi is holding on for dear life. (laughs) <laughs> yeah from this moment it's funny i i watched this match with like the you know the the new english commentary uh the archive english commentary I did too. with uh, kevin kelly and i thought it was hilarious when they were he was like, you know mentioning people were already asking in 2012 is tanahashi done <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, that's 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 hilarious to think about right like people i guess at that time were kind of you know with the long title reign and all these offenses like man is, is tanahashi is he breaking down is he done um and especially after okada beats him i'm sure fans are probably like man like yeah okada, tanahashi he must be done if you know this young guy that's gonna come in here and beat him this man is the one in 100 year talent <laughs> he was not done <laughs> So before we talk about the next match, just to kind of give you guys a little bit of background, I did watch the title challenge when Tanahashi finally walked out to challenge Okada. 
And in the interim time, so, you know, Tanahashi drops the belt to Okada. Okada has two subsequent title defenses. He has one against Tetsuya Naito. um, Great match. It is a great match. And that's someone that he debuted early on in his career, someone from his generation. So, you know, they're about to, to wrestle here in the upcoming near future. I don't even think people realize sometimes how far deep the history between Naito and Okada really goes. Uh, but, you know, Okada beats Naito. After that, he beats Goto, who had won the New Japan Cup. And then that leads us into the uh, title match with Tanahashi. In the meantime, Tanahashi was a participant in the New Japan Cup. He made it to the finals and lost to Goto to lose that opportunity to challenge Okada. So, I mean, the runner-up getting a title shot the next month, some things never change with uh, <laughs> with Gato's booking. You know, and you might be wondering, what did Tanahashi do in between losing the New Japan Cup and then getting the title shot? Not a damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> he stayed busy in some all-time tags. And then uh, as soon as Goto, and also Okada beating Naito and Goto in back-to-back title defenses, some things never change. <laughs> but, um... One of the uh, interesting things leading to that title defense, all three of those guys had, well, both of those guys had focused on Tanahashi's um, earlier matches with Okada, and they noticed that there was a big red target on the knee and leg of Okada, and they attacked that mercilessly. And so going into the second match, or the second, you know, proper match between Tanahashi and Okada, there's a bullseye for Tanahashi on that leg. The groundwork's have been laid specifically by Tetsuya Naito. But Tanahashi challenging Okada after, uh, you know, after Okada retained is such a weird position for him to be in, to be the guy walking out to challenge the youngster who that took his title from him and, like, literally have to be the guy that, like, is the challenger is such a role reversal for him at this point in the feud. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, it sets the groundwork for Dominion, June 16th, 2012 as Tanahashi challenges Okada for the IWGP title. What are your thoughts, Rich? Man, this is a hell of a match. This is the earliest great, great match that they have. And I agree. You look at it, um, it's like a level above this one because now they're on a much more even playing field. Tanahashi is fighting, is really trying to tap into what his true greatness is. This is his greatest challenge. Not Minoru Suzuki, not Yuji Nagata, not the Road Warriors, but <laughs> Kazushika Okada. Like he came out here and was like, if this is as good as it's gonna get for me, I'm gonna give you my goddamn best and and try to get this uh get this freaking title back. He was much more focused, much more vicious on the uh attacks on the legs and he um they tore the house down on this. We watched it Saturday together, Jeremy, and it was just watching it. And I like, I didn't know who won this one. Like for some reason, I just couldn't think of who won. So it was like a relatively fresh match for me. And I was like, this is, this is the blueprint for the next decade of main events in new Japan right here. Yeah. Yeah, man, this match was just such a great matchup. And like you mentioned, Josh Tanahashi comes in, He's clearly done his homework this time. He's kind of been humbled, and now he's like, all right, I can't take this kid as a joke. I need to take him seriously. And I already kind of saw a chink in the armor with with the knee. So like you mentioned, Josh, he just 
you know, dragon screw after dragon screw, inverted dragon screw, dragon screw in the ropes. Um, it's all variations of dragon screws complemented with his normal offense with the sling blades and the dragon suplexes and the the aces high to the outside. So he's like combining yeah. like all his signature moves, but plus ramping up the the attack on the legs. He's pulling out the the Texas Clover hole and, and trying to get submissions. And I just feel like this is a case of where Tanahashi, very similar to how in the first match I felt like Okada kind of had the match won before he went in. I feel like Tanahashi kind of felt that way as well because he he was more familiar with Okada now. He knew what to expect. He knew to, to look out for the drop kicks and and the rainmaker. And he had so many counters. Every time Okada went for the Rainmaker, he would counter it into a sling blade or counter it into a suplex or, you know, get out of it some way. And he just seemed like he was a, a few steps ahead of Okada this time. And we're getting all those reversals, really, for, yeah. the, for the first time. Like, you know, the crazy closing sequence. Like, um, the the sling blade really plays a big factor here uh, out of nowhere. Yeah, that's all 100% true. Um, you guys did an awesome job recapping this. And I, you know, what's funny. Um, I was talking with Jeremy. When I talked to Jeremy the other day, I hadn't seen Wrestle Kingdom 7 in a while. And I, I was very confident. I was like, you know what? This match is great, but Wrestle Kingdom 7 is better. And then after watching Wrestle Kingdom 7, I was like, nope, it's not better. This is the best match out of their early series, in my opinion, uh, at least for that first early chapter of, of their matches. And, um, a few other things that that were notable to me was the way Tanahashi walked out was different than how he was the first time. He was much more grim, much more serious, you know, much more, um, you know, just uh, gravitas for this match. And he's not so much playing up to the crowd. He's kind of got a game plan in mind. And then, you know, when Okada comes out, um, this is the first time in their series that you're seeing the full-blown Rainmaker. I mean, he's got the Okada dollars, he's got the chain, he's got the higher-end uh, freaking robe, like, and he's got the the IWGP V4 title, and it's like, okay, this is this is the feud, you know what I mean? Long gone are the shocks and everything like that. But what's nice about that, the entrances, you know, not to tear down Western wrestling, but just to kind of give you an example. When you watch, like, let's say the WWE product, it doesn't matter what's going on in the storyline. When those guys and girls walk out to the crowd uh, or walk out for a match, no matter whether it's a comedy match or a title match or their retirement match or, you know, a a grudge match, it doesn't matter. They're going to do the same fucking shit every single time when they walk out because part of that mentality is that people pay to see these signature entrances it's part of the performance but in in new japan especially in this feud it's not like that every single match takes on a different story and a different tale that they're telling and the intentions and the thoughts of the performers are, are affected by the previous story so you see that reflected not just in the match itself but by the way they enter and you kind of get a sense of what's really going on and you know it's not cookie cutter by the numbers the same thing every single time and these are real people with real motivations thoughts and actions and like it's refreshing to look back on it and be like okay they were like literally on the moment they walked out from the curtain it wasn't just one when they got in the ring you know what i mean yeah and was it this match that he okada had the the rainmaker bucks for his entrance or was that Russell kingdom he had it for both i believe okay, yeah 
But even just that addition to to Okada's entrance was was a big deal. Yeah. And um, Okada, in this match, he goes back to Old Faithful and he tries to attack the neck very heavily, just like he did in the first match. I mean, that in the early part of this feud, that's going to be his bread and butter. Um, But in this match, just like you guys mentioned, um, Tanahashi decides to focus on the knee and the leg, sort of like what he did during the Young Lion match initially, what he started to try to do in the New Beginning match, but it was a little too late by the time he tried to employ it. In this match, he goes for it early. And um, both of them are able to inflict a lot of damage on one another, focusing on the knee, focusing on the neck, uh, you know, likewise. But like you mentioned, Jeremy, Tanahashi has scouted everything Okada did in that first match, and he's developed his own counters to all the signature spots. The other thing, too, is that by taking out the leg of Okada, it's one of the most um, pivotal moments because later in the match, when he's trying to get those devastating tombstones, things that pretty much won him the match in the first uh, New Beginning match, he can't do them because he doesn't have a wheel. And it's just like, um, um, oh, God, it's just like Terry Silver said in uh, <laughs> Cobra Kai. He said, Fight. Man can't stand and can't fight. <laughs> balance is very important. And uh, this man, Okada, didn't have balance. And that allowed Tanahashi to counter the tombstone, hit a tombstone of his own. And he was able to um, hit all of his signature moves that he was unable to hit in the first match. Now, the interesting thing here, though, is this. Uh, for those that have been following Tanahashi up to this point, it's not unusual for him to hit one finishing sequence and put someone away when he gets into trouble. In this match, even though he played everything right and everything straight and avoided the Rainmaker and was able to avoid a lot of those devastating moves and was able to uh, employ this game plan, he still had to have like three or four finishing sequences before he was able to put Okada away. And what that shows you is that with all of his skill and all of his experience, he's still going life and death with a freshly green Okada who's just barely started to make his way onto the world stage because Okada is a genius and he's one of the most naturally talented skilled guys that there's ever been and it takes everything in in, uh, Tanahashi's arsenal to put this man away and he's not even in his first year of being on the main roster (laughs) right and that performance helps elevate Okada we talked about you know how creating a new star well, you know, Okada gets a big win now. Tanahashi, the veteran, he comes back, gets a win, but he doesn't come back and squash him. Like you mentioned, he comes back, and it's a life-and-death battle, and he just kind of barely by the skin of his teeth kind of uh, squeaks it out and gets the win here, and that just elevates Okada to an even higher level. Yeah. So uh, some notes from uh, Dave here from The Observer. He says there was a lot of controversy when Tanahashi lost to Okada, who's still only 24. Okada had never been pushed before and was coming off a TNA run where he was best known for wearing a green hornet mask and being called Okado with Samoa Joe. <laughs> uh, Tanahashi had been the best representative of a world champion in pro wrestling in many years during his one-year-plus reign. It was a, ga- a gamble and a company looking to make an immediate new star. Okada was tall and very athletic. He had been very good for a long time as far as being a young wrestler, but his time in TNA couldn't have helped him. And unlike the old days where a Japanese star would leave and have success abroad, whether it be Mexico, the U.S., Canada, or Europe, and fans would await to see his return, the landscape has changed in sending a guy to the U.S. with the relationship with TNA. 
has meant talented guys disappear. Even Tetsuya Naito, who main evented with Yujiro in Mexico, and who tore it up when he was given TV time, couldn't buy a push, and now he's amongst the best workers in the entire business. But Okada didn't have the long CMLL main event run Naito had before disappearing in the TNA abyss. He had to go from just a guy to the champion of Japan's biggest promotion and being given a gimmick of a playboy that clearly wasn't him. But Okada silenced critics in his first title defense, a win over Naito that would have to rank right near the top of the best matches anywhere in the world this year. The win established that while he may not have earned the spot by being a star before being given it, he wasn't out of place. His short title run has to be considered, in hindsight, a success far beyond what anyone could have possibly hoped or reasonably hoped for. Tanahashi should have beaten Okada when the rematch came up. Just because he's a man right now, he shouldn't be losing twice to a guy not yet at his level of stardom to the people at, at least just yet. His last title reign was only given traction when the move was made to try and create a star out of nowhere. Okada was probably equivalent to a Jack Swagger getting the world title in WWE when he got the title, but was booked so far superior and to his credit also performed at a much higher level. Okada is now a main inventor and considered probably the company's number two guy, a position he can build on for years. And if New Japan is able to somehow get a more mainstream television slot, and at this point, the way Japanese culture is moving, the odds are against it. Okada vs. Naito and Okada vs. Tanahashi has the ability to be legendary programs. Now, one thing, um, it sounds like by this point, a lot of the things that I kind of said earlier where I disagreed with uh, Dave, um, you know, as things played out, his tunes changed just a bit here. And, you know, we're only like four months down the road. But um, one thing that he's also a little bit wrong on based on what we've learned from Okada over the years, Okada has said that his time in TNA was beneficial to him because that's where he learned to create the Rainmaker character. He wasn't saddled with a Playboy character that he didn't want to portray. He was the one who envisioned himself as the Rainmaker and came up with the idea of that showmanship and, and that bravado when he was in America. He learned that from his exposure to Western wrestling. So even though, yes, they didn't treat him well while he was there, they didn't give him opportunities, they didn't grow him as a performer in, in the in-ring sense, that is where he came up with the idea of the Rainmaker is watching wrestling in, in the States. I'm I'm still stuck on him saying Okada was probably equivalent to a Jack Swagger getting <laughs> the world title in WWE. That's just um, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, mean it makes sense. I, I I remember watching Jack Swagger back then, and like you know, I thought he was amazing, but he also probably wasn't ready for that spot when they gave it to him. Right, right, and. and Gato also, um, like through the Okada and Tanahashi series, you start learning the booking patterns of Gato. How many times have we talked about a guy winning the world title for the first time and then dropping it after uh, not that many defenses, like a short run? Like it's right here for us to look at. Yeah. And so that's going to take us towards the, the last uh, chapter here that we'll cover which is leading to Wrestle Kingdom 7 Evolution in Tokyo Dome, January 4th, 2013, with Tanahashi as the champion defending against Okada. Uh, Josh, do you have any notes on kind of what happened in, in between uh, Dominion and Wrestle Kingdom 7? Oh, I got no notes, baby. 
this is all off the dome. You think I have notes in front of me? <laughs> so um, after their uh, Dominion meeting, obviously, the uh, you know, in the next coming months is the G1 Climax. And I think that was going to be a very pivotal moment for young Kazushika Okada. Um, during that tournament, Tanahashi and Okada were kept in separate blocks. I can't recall which block specifically, but um, Tanahashi does very, very well in the tournament. He eats a couple losses. Ultimately, he ends up dropping uh, a block final to Carl Anderson, the machine gun, <laughs> Carl Anderson, who would live off the notoriety of beating Tanahashi to go to the G1 finals for the rest of his career. And um, in the opposite block, Okada would defeat his uh, stablemate and leader of his stable, um, Shinsuke Nakamura, to earn his birth into the finals of the G1. He wins the G1 in his first time out as a, you know, as a rookie, as a, you know, as a uh, returning uh, young lion and um, solidified his spot to go to the Tokyo Dome. Now, the interesting thing about this is prior to him winning the G1, yes, the G1 winner always did get a title shot, but it was never specifically at any particular given place or time. This is the first time that the G1 winner declares that he is going to win or he's going to take his contract and he's going to go to the Tokyo Dome on January 4th to challenge for the title, which when you think about it, we always wonder, you know, August, September, that's a far ways off from January. How are they going to fill the space? Well, this is where they introduced the idea of the briefcase. Wonder where Okada got that idea from. (laughs) And he defended that briefcase against many of the men that had defeated him in the G1. So this is where we start to see the uh, more modern tradition of the G1 winner defending their, uh, you know, G1 contract all throughout the, uh, the coming months and tours. That's something that Okada, you know, initially introduced and he did that successfully at the same time, Tanahashi goes on a series of title defenses. And then we wind up with wrestle kingdom seven, the G1 champion Okada, challenging for his lost IWGP title against his arch nemesis, Hiroshi Tanahashi in the Dome. Now, this is something that um, you and I have talked about many times on this podcast, Jeremy, is how normally in recent times, Gato likes to book main events for the Tokyo Dome that have been protected main events that you don't normally see throughout the calendar year. And there's a long history of that. But this seems to be one of those rare examples where that is kind of nixed altogether because the program is so hot and so prolific that they've already had two major matches during this year. And now they're going to cap it off by having an even bigger match on a bigger stage involving the same two principles to really settle who is the best, who is really truly the ace of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Yeah, and they're able to do it because the shit's so hot. <laughs> yeah, and you, you look at it, and there, there's still a lot of time in between um, the Tokyo Dome match and Dominion. Those Dominion's in June. This match is January of, of the next year, so there's definitely some some time where the match still felt fresh. But yeah, it is kind of unusual to when we look back at some recent uh, booking in G1 wins and Wrestle Kingdom main events. Usually, he yeah, does try to protect that that main event match as as much as possible. But like you mentioned, you know, the feud was so hot. We're in a time period now, you know, we're, we're coming out of the dark ages. We're, we're getting a new manager, Bushi Rhodes coming in. New Japan is trying to kind of recoup some losses, trying to make some money. 
uh, and try to become mainstream again. And so this feud is so hot. We saw at New Beginning, you know, they had to, they had to turn fans away from from the building. Uh, this feud's a hot program, and they're trying to get back to a, a status of where they can be filling out the Tokyo Dome again. And so this was the right feud to kind of kick off this era of just incredible Wrestle Kingdoms and big main events and, you know, drawing crowds to the Tokyo Dome. They were constructing the things that we compare things to now in new japan and you know the last five years they so all is forgiven for them doing you know quote unquote not protecting a match they had to build the foundation of the house before they could start inviting guests over Mm. (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like a line that a preacher would use (laughs) you know that's big big church guy me (laughs) (laughs) no it's really good though um you know one thing to think about too is, I mean, you know, um, Tanahashi, by the time they go into this Tokyo Dome match, he's literally participated in every single Wrestle Kingdom Tokyo Dome uh, event that's uh, already occurred. And he's main evented, I think, in like four or five of them up to this point. So, I mean, if, if there's anyone who is truly at home, you know, earlier, uh, Rich, you talked about during the new beginning match, you talked about, you know, a road team coming and beating you at home. I don't know. That might have fit there, but this is where you really got to talk about the home field advantage for Hiroshi Tanahashi. Because the dome. He's yes. in the dome and he's the ace. And, you know, the ace don't lose in the dome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for Okada, the only experience he's ever had, sure. He's been in G1 finals. Sure, he's won the IWGB title. He's main evented. He's done anniversary shows. He's been to Dominion. He's never been in the main event of the Tokyo Dome with like 40,000 people there. He's never beaten the ace for the title at the top of the card. The only experience he has is wrestling Yoshihashi in an early contest on the card that literally, like I talked about earlier, had cricket. So, you know, this is like the, you know, we talk about the real test. Well, this is the real <laughs> test for Kazushiko Kata. Can he beat the ace in his final form at the top of his game in his hometown or, you know, in his home arena? And, and that's the story here. And uh, what I like about this match, even though I don't think it plays out quite as definitively as the first three matches that we described, it's sort of, um, like you mentioned uh, Rich, they laid the groundwork for the house they were going to build. This is almost sort of like a best of or you know, playing the hits of the entire feud so far, mixing in a couple little wrinkles, but this is kind of just a, a rehash of everything they've done throughout the year, and it's like a recap, but it's done on the grand stage. That's kind of what I like about this. I don't know what your guys' thoughts are. Go ahead, Rich. I like it because Okada clearly comes in not the not the arrogant guy he was before. Um, he is leveled up gear wise. He's leveled up um, kind of projection wise, but he's coming in with a goal in mind. Dead serious. He's been hardened through defeat at this point, and I liked this because it's Wrestle Kingdom. And they were establishing like what that Russell Kingdom 
uh, stage would be still. This is only the seventh one. Uh, Tanahashi has already, you know, owned that stage already, but this is Okada's first dome main event when you think about it. And it's a stark contrast from that guy that damn near was laughed out of the dome um, one year prior to this. And then one year later, it's like, oh yeah, it's on. He definitely belongs here. And we're about to get a classic. And um, they basically put together they're 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 uh building on sequences that they already uh had had you know set up in previous matches and uh both guys know each other kind of like the back of their hands at this point and this is the the launch point for this feud to even go to a higher level like we're not going to cover it today but invasion attack is right around the corner and that's kind of hailed as the uh chef's kiss of this whole thing yeah, there's so much uh, I loved about this Wrestle Kingdom 7 match. Uh, just starting from the entrances, like you mentioned, Josh, about entrances kind of being a big deal. You know, here we get the, you know, the WrestleMania uh, Shawn Michael entrance with them coming down uh, from the sky. This little, like, a rafter lift thing coming down, kind of big entrance. Uh, Tanahashi uh, came out with some, some musical guest celebrity uh, people. Um, you know, if, if you actually... Um watch it on the non new japan world version they they did a gigantic uh performance to lead him down mm. from the rafters like it's like this huge huge production but they don't it's not on new japan world for some reason gotcha so yeah they, they came out with tanahashi big big entrance for him um and then you know okada once again we, we mentioned it the game plan tanahashi's neck and i feel he kind of up the the ante here with that he did a um the, the randy orton Draping DDT, but he did it from the top rope, and the crowd just let out this big gasp when he hit yeah. that that move on uh, Tanahashi. Um, then there was a, a spot where he does the, the kind of like the camel clutch stretch in the guardrail. <clears throat> he does it right in front of those musical guests that came out with Tanahashi and the commentators. Kind of like, look, this is this is your guy. This is a guy you came out with. This, <laughs> you sing a song for this guy. Like, look at him. Look at him. Um, and then Okada, he he goes for like the the ramp. Uh, like crossbody or drop kick that he would do in later Wrestle Kingdoms, but Tanahashi was one step ahead of him, countered a sling blade, so that was a big spot uh, on the stage there. Um, I, I love too. There was like a new setup for Okada's like corner drop kick. Like Tanahashi had went up to the top, and then they were kind of doing this kind of reversal sequence, and then like out of nowhere, Okada just drop kicked him off the top rope for that signature uh, drop kick spot. Um, and yeah, it was just so many great like spots that were built off of the foundation of the first two matches. One other thing about this, um, I'm always looking at gear and you know <laughs> the presentation. This is like the these are gold boots Okada right here. This is yeah. like a a um, so back when I would be playing like the WWE 2K games, like 2K15, 16, or whatever, like the creators were a little bit slower than they are nowadays to get everything right. So like if you're, and you know, they're, they were really good, but there were only so many people that were doing Japanese wrestling. The templates they were using were the, were the outfits from Russell Kingdom seven, Tanahashi Okada, like these, like, like this was a match that started getting out there. I remember before I ever watched New Japan, I got this match recommended to me from Sierra Reed one time. Um, she was like, check this out. And it, she was like, it was like match of the year or whatever. So I watched this match years ago. 
um, and watched it again today. And it was like, wow, Tanahashi's in phenomenal condition. Okada yeah. is just like, like it's, a, it's like in Tanahashi's case, he's 44 years old now, 45 years old now. So it's, you know, it's a look back on what the ace used to look like. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we love the ace, but, uh, you know, he's seen better days. And I think, uh, you know, like I, I love the pageantry of it. Like those, like the outfits, like were great. Tanahashi skipping to the ring. Um, and this is just, you know, this is the, this is the match that starts the, the dome era for Bushi road, essentially. Yeah. One, a few other things too, with this match. I mean, um, they definitely, like I mentioned, they play the hits, right? So, you know, Tanahashi starts to implement the only strategy that's been proven effective in his encounters with Okada, and that's attacking the leg and vice versa for Okada, he attacks the neck. So, I mean, that stuff is still playing out, but it's the little things that I start to notice that kind of set this match apart. Like, like you guys mentioned, Tanahashi skipping to the ring. I don't think in this case that it came off and maybe I'm just reading more into it than it was, but like in the first match at new beginning, he's coming off arrogant to me. Like he's coming off. Like, I don't give a fuck about this guy. Like, you know, we ball in this match. It doesn't come off like an arrogance. It comes off like a confidence. Like, Oh, you done fucked up. Cause you're in the dome with the ACE. <laughs> <laughs> you're fucking with the ACE in the dome. And like, he's like, do you know where you're at? You're in my house. Like that's nah, the nah, Josh. You got to do the joint from that movie. Yeah, do that voice. You're fucking with Ace. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and what's what makes that so great is Okada coming down just stone faced. You know, um, very very grim looking when he comes down, and then when he gets to the ring, he tries to do the Rainmaker pose. And he tries to show senses of bravado throughout the match. But if you pay attention, he he doesn't seem confident. And I don't think it's because in reality, Okada is so overwhelmed by the environment. Maybe he was. I think it's that he's tapping into the character and the fact that the character is not ready for the stage yet. And that in comparison to Tanahashi's experience, that Tanahashi, I've been here. This is my seventh time here. This is just your first time here. And he tries to play that he's bold, but Tanahashi sees right through it. Tanahashi's like, no, no, this is what a Tokyo Dome pose looks like. (laughs) And And, and, and think about it. Like the last time he was in the dome, he stanked the shit out. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and and like you said, we're not going to get to it, but like these guys would have three, two other Tokyo Dome matches, but we wouldn't get to that till Wrestle Kingdom 9. So by the time Okada returns to the Dome in Wrestle Kingdom 8, and he loses this match, he does have something to prove the next year. Can he win in the big building on the big stage? Because on this night, he's not able to. And regardless of the fact that he's this prodigy, regardless of the fact that he earned this, you know, he didn't come out and just demand for the title shot like a brat, and he wasn't undeserving of it he won the g1 he he proved that he's one of the best guys in the world but he still can't beat the ace in the dome yet and you know in other companies 
they would tell this story so that on the third bout, they would have either they would have the young up and comer who's challenging, they'd have him lose, and then he'd go off and he'd get pushed down the card and then never come back up. <laughs> or, or this would be the place where they finally quote unquote coronate him and crown him and give him his run. But New Japan's a little smarter than that, especially with Gato's booking. Like they're delaying the uh you know we're not going to get that delayed we're not going to get that um that full coronation for like literally another three years and probably no one at the time could see that it was going to play out that way but that's what's going to happen and um to see tanahashi go out there and like just school this guy on the on the main stage like it's really awesome because that's the big part of the story is like can okada hang with him at the tip tip top stage at new japan's wrestlemania and the answer is no on this night no as great as he is he's still not there yet yeah uh some notes are here from dave from the observer he says the road to tokyo dome had big shows of tanahashi defending on top and okada defending his contendership and dome tile shot and singles matches underneath throughout the big show run since august it was clear what the ultimate match was both men continued to win on big shows to where the match done twice in the last year became not just your WrestleMania main event, but your special dream match that elevated the event. There are two schools of thought. It was Tanahashi on top who built business and who was a star who people were paying to see on top. Business is still growing, so why make the change? The flip side is Tanahashi is made and established, and there are no new big challengers on the horizon, particularly having knocked, off, knocked Shibata off earlier in the show. With Okada, you have several matches they didn't get to on the last run, and there's probably money in Tanahashi having that long chase before he gets a shot and wins it back. But Tanahashi won a classic main event that went 33-34, starting at the four-hour mark of the show. That tore the house down. To me, since the match built on spots from the previous two matches, it was very slightly exceeded them, and was a genuine match of the year candidate. Yet, it could be argued it wasn't even the best match with a sensational three-way, where Prince Devitt retained the IWGP junior title over former champions Loki and Kota Ibushi, and the Nakamura vs. Sakuraba IC title bout. They all tore the house down, and all I had five, four-star or better matches. And what made them is a very what made them is every one of these those matches was completely different than the other. So this was the match that they showed during the inaugural New Japan on Access Television um, telecast, and it was uh, commentated by Mauro Ranallo and Josh Barnett. And even though I was already watching New Japan, that was kind of the the match that when they showed it, I was like, oh fuck, like, they're doing some big things here in the States. Like, this is going to be a big deal, you know? That's back in 2015. I literally can't find that that telecast. I looked everywhere. I looked on XWT Classics. Like, I looked everywhere. Like, you, just, I, don't, I don't know who we have to call. If we got to call Sean or someone from Access and, like, have them, like, drudge up the, uh, you know, the, the archives for us. But uh, I really wish I could find that. But um, that being said, I do disagree a little bit with Dave in the sense that I don't think that of the series we covered, this is the best of their matches, but I could see you making that argument because, uh, because of the stage it's on and because of how great the match truly is. Um, I think that this is in some ways comparable to the first match they had in the first match they had Okada had the edge because he was unexpectedly shocking Tanahashi, who was unprepared for the match. In this match, it's a little different 
because Tanahashi has the edge, not just from experience, but also because of his big dome match experience and the atmosphere and the element there. You know, um, they really don't go into all the uh, crazy um, reversal spots that you saw in the second match that that Rich pointed out that would become hallmark staples of the feud. That is kind of what elevated that match a little bit more for me. It was like the closing sequences are classic Okada Tanahashi sequence like closing here. Tanahashi just avoided the the uh, the rainmaker at all costs and just hit him with his big shit and just got this man put away. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I think the match is still awesome, but it didn't. Rewatching it these years later, it didn't quite live up to the way I remembered it when I first you know saw it years ago in in Japanese and then you know a few years later uh, on Access, but. That might also speak to how how far wrestling has come because you know at the time they they called this like a four and three quarter three quarter almost five star match, and now I watch it and I'm like that's ah, still really great but like it's like a four and a quarter four and a half maybe star match and maybe that's because I think the craft has just you know even been further you know excelled based off of matches like this in in the forefront and you know this whole renaissance that they've had but um I love the match. I think that um, if they never had wrestled again, this would have been an awesome, like, cap on the feud. And, you know, if, like, let's say in another universe, Okada, for some reason, went to, like, WWE or something like that, never came back. Because there were rumors of that at the time. Mm -hmm. This would have been a fine, like, you know, conclusion to this portion of their story. You know? Fortunately, it's not. And there's even better matches coming in, even more great matches and, and uh, narratives that come out of this going into 2013. But it's so interesting to see how it all just like played out. And even reading those uh, statements, look at how Dave changes tune from February of 2012 to January of 2013, talking about how this man is made, you know, going from they shouldn't have done this to, man, they got a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm curious where you guys were uh, star ratings wise on, on all three of these matchups. Hmm. Well, um, I can start. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I can four and a quarter on the um. Well, uh, for the young lion match, I'd probably go like three and a half, which I think is pretty generous for a young lion match like that, especially at 13 minutes. I'd go four and a quarter on the new beginning match. Um, I'm like four and a half on the. Uh, second match, I could maybe even go higher, maybe four and three quarters, but then probably four and three quarters actually on that Dominion match. And then I think I'm four and a half on the Wrestle Kingdom 7 match, which in the past I've always gone, gone higher than that, but it, with 2022 eyes, I think I'm four and a half on this. Yeah, I would probably say three and three quarters on the Young Lion match. Uh, I'll go four and a quarter on the uh, New Beginning. I'm going the f- I'm going five on the Dominion match. Because wow. that shit was like <laughs> that shit, like it was like that small building. It looked like an old school, like Japanese building they were in. It looked like if you were to pull up some uh, all Japan or like New Japan in the mid two thousand, <laughs> it looked like that kind of building. And that environment just set it off for me. And I'll probably stick with you on four and a half at the Russell Kingdom. Yeah. Wow. So, so for me, I'm three and a half on the Young Lion match. I am also four and a quarter on the new beginning match 
I'm four and three quarters on the Dominion match. That I'm also four and three quarters on the Wrestle Kingdom seven match. Mark, <laughs> <laughs> you know they're they're in the dome, man. They have, <laughs> you get an extra quarter star just for being in the, in the main event in the dome. That is funny. Oh man. Well, we had a couple questions here on uh, Okada and Tanahashi. Uh, so first, from Rambo and Slam Pig says, what key lessons do you think Okada took from working with Tanahashi at that formative point in his career? Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, well, one of the things I would say is like, you know, as great as Okada is, and I'm not going to say he got carried, quote, unquote, or he didn't hold his own, but he is still relatively speaking green compared to the you know, type of performer that he becomes later on in his career, a guy that can lead anybody to a classic match. I don't know that Okada's quite that at this time. It's pretty clear to me watching these matches that Tanahashi's the guy leading almost everything in those matches. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I don't know what lessons specifically he took from it, but I mean, how could you working in those three big spots in your first year as a main eventer working with, the best main eventer in the history of the company not grow, learn, and, and absorb everything that he's imparting into you, even just by osmosis from being in the ring with him. You know what I mean? Right. I feel like it was just general studies on uh, top stardom, essentially, and main yeah. eventism. And <laughs> main, main eventism 101. Correct. <laughs> and, like, just, uh, you know... I don't know if we'll ever actually see Okada and this probably, you know, leaks into the second question. I don't want to jump too ahead, but it let Okada know somebody was there to make him. So possibly be there to make somebody else. Well, he did that with Omega. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, I see, I was going to try to not bring up Kenny this whole show, but I don't think it's quite the same. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's more of a once in a lifetime, hold on, why these people came together uh that were at the top of their games and just right. had never faced off before. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you guys. I mean, yeah, you're you're working with Tanahashi, he he's the ace, like, you know, it's kinda of like on a job training and you're working with one of the most experienced people in the field. Um, so I'm sure he learned some kind of placements and where to put stuff, some pacing, some, you know, how do you get the most out of this move? And I'm sure he, he learned a ton from working with Tanahashi. One other thing too, um, you know, I know over the years there have been, and it's, you know, I don't think it's a persistent thing. I don't think it's always the narrative, but after a period of time, Okada's on top, people start to get tired of it. And then you start hearing the reoccurring LOL Okada wins. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I think that's bad faith. In fact, you know, I don't think we hear as much of it now that New Japan is not a threat so much to like Western wrestling, specifically WWE. <laughs> most, most of those bad faith actors have turned their attention to AEW and like left New Japan alone. But that used to kind of be the narrative. They're like, oh, New Japan is not good because Okada's always winning. But when you really think about it, how many times over the years have we seen this guy lay down and do the job? Many, many, many times. How many times have we seen him go out there and break his back to get his opponents over, whether they were someone on his level, like a Kenny Omega, 
or Tetsuya Naito or someone who might be considered inferior, like Bad Luck Fale, for for instance, you mm. know, J-Y. or Yujiro. Well, <laughs> I would no, I would actually. You know what? If we're being honest, I think the feud between Jay White and Okada is the closest thing we've seen out of Okada to imparting something into a, a younger star from a different generation. And then maybe like Will Ospreay too. Those are probably the two closest things we have to what Tanahashi gave to Okada. But um, I say all that to say this. In New Japan, there is a culture of giving. There is a culture of people. Shit, not Nikeji Muto. <laughs> not him. I'm talking about modern. But, but you, you see like you these know. tournaments. <laughs> You're ruining my point, Rich. <laughs> you see, so many times in these New Japan Cups and in these G1s and different things like that, where guys have to lay down to let other guys rise up. And Okada is no exception. I mean, look how many times he's lost to Shingo and, you know, Zack Sabre Jr. and Abushi and Naito and Omega. And the list goes on and on and on. And I think that he gained a lot of that from experiencing it with Tanahashi and others. You know what I mean? And that's kind of one of the things that does separate New Japan in general is, you know, this sense that all ships rise with the rising tide. And as there is a sense of giving, it's not just all about guys protecting their spot. I'm sure that goes on. I'm sure there's guys guys that worry about their position. But how many guys really do that? I mean, I've seen almost everybody on that roster lay down for almost everybody else, and that's not something you can say about most companies in the history of wrestling. Right. You know, there are people that will intentionally take themselves out of the main event scene so they don't have to lose <laughs> to any main event. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about, but that's funny. Oh, man. Think, think <laughs> real long and real hard. Oh, Cody. <laughs> So, uh, Rambone, second question. He says, do you see Okada playing the Tanahashi role in a parallel feud for a wrestler from the younger generation in the near future? Or is it too soon for that? If so, who? Well, I think that's something that a lot of people are hoping for, you know? They're hoping that a Yuya Yumura or a uh, Shota Umino is going to show back, show up and, and be able to play out the same way that, uh, you know, Tanahashi and Okada has. Here's my only really con- – well, there's two things with that that I – concern number one are we just getting into a rut now where we're just rehashing old stories and not like changing it up and creating fresh new narratives and exciting you know outcomes you know at that point it's just a tribute show and i don't think that's what new japan should be i don't think it should just be you know the merry-go-round where we with, with gato's structured booking we already have too much stuff that's uh you know expected it wouldn't be a good idea to just do the same stories he did a decade ago. But the other thing too, is even if you wanted to do a, a version of that, do we have an Okada sitting out there in, in Mexico or sitting out there in LA or sitting out there in uh, Europe who can come in and facilitate? I mean, how many guys could have actually done this and, right. and, and, and fit the shoes? You know, there's very few people. Like I love you. You more like i loved him you know years back on the show voting for him for best young lion and stuff like that but like there's... you're the reason narita didn't win <laughs> <laughs> so they um like like you said there's no guarantee that like tanahashi and okada is a lightning in a bottle rivalry you can't just push the button to recreate that i don't care who you have 
Right, and I know Yamura, it does seem like they, they want to groom him for that position. His last match was with Okada, and after the match, Okada gave him that big drop kick to send him off, so there's definitely a story that can be played out with Yamura coming back to gun down Okada and kind of get revenge for that for that drop kick, and maybe we can do it a little bit different, but again, you know, Yamura, he's just on excursion. He has a lot to learn. He has a lot to grow. I don't know if he... You know, looking at Okada's Young Lion match, I didn't see the stuff that we saw there that we saw in Yurimura's Young Lion match. And Yurimura's awesome, and he and he's he's doing great on excursion so far, but I don't think he has all it put together like Okada did in his Young Lion stage. Shame on you, Yurimura, for, for not, you know, being like Kazushka Okada. <laughs> you know? Dude, I, th- I mean, honestly, from what I've seen, I think he might have what it takes to be a future ace but i would love for him to come in his own way and tell his own story and have his own you know path it doesn't have to be quite this although and keep in mind i'm not saying rambo and slam pick has uh called for that but you know i think there are fans who are calling they're like he should come in and challenge and upset him in the first you know title shot the same way that he did to tanahashi and i'm like no let's let's do something else let's do something you know fresh new and exciting you know yeah uh, then we have a question here from uh, MJ Does PR. He says, excluding Tana, Naito, and Kenny, who had the best matches with Okada during his legendary title run? Hmm. So no Tanahashi, no Naito, and no Kenny Omega. Who had the best matches with Okada overall? Yeah. I don't know, man. That's I guess a lot you gotta say Shibata. You gotta say Shibata, but how many times did he really work with Shibata? Once. Once. And, it, and it's arguably maybe the best match in the history of New Japan, unless you feel like the Omega matches are better. I do, but you know. Right, but <laughs> but I feel like that match is so good that anyone who says otherwise, I'm not gonna fight them. Right, right. What What about uh, Nakamura? They had two really, really, really good matches. So that is possible. It's probably Ibushi if you really think about it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's probably Ibushi. Um, and I bet you he probably um, meant to exclude him too to make the question <laughs> harder. I forgot to. And that was his undoing because it's, yeah, I think Ibushi is the, the right answer. There, yeah. There's somebody that's been yelling Kota Ibushi for like 30 seconds now. So <laughs> whoever you are. I'm I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, there could be an argument for Ishii or Will as well. Mm. Yeah. But uh, how, I how think many I, times I, did he, did did Will ever really challenge him for the belt? Though was it this his first like real challenge for the belt? This is their first title match. I okay. Believe, yeah. Right. I, I would. Every, think everything so. else was when he was a junior or during a G1. Right. Well, the the Wrestle or, Kingdom 15 was just non-title. It was non-title. So this is the only title match they've ever had. Yeah. So but I'm. I don't know. Some, some people might like those Sonata matches, mm. but um, I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I wouldn't even listen to that. That noise, like at all. Yeah. Uh, some people probably like the Suzuki matches a lot too, but uh, and I like them, but I'm not as high on those as everyone else is. Uh, of course, there is AJ Styles. Uh yeah, that's another. That's a good one. That's another one, but yeah, I think for my money, I'd probably take a based off the strength of that one Wrestle Kingdom match they had, probably Ibushi. Yeah, yeah, I'm taking Kota Ibushi. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Well, guys, that's going to wrap up our discussion, celebration of the Rainmaker Shock and looking back at the rivalry, the beginning part of the rivalry of Tanahashi and Okada. There's so much more that we could dive into with this whole rivalry. We'll, we'll save that for another. Do you guys have any like quick final just thoughts before we end this little project? <laughs> yeah, man. Um this is uh it was very interesting to look at it like this because this is essentially a whole chapter with these uh four matches you know including the young lions match and uh it's the foundational feud of new japan and this feud has so many other uh you know blocks in it like of course in 2018 you know you got the belt the block and the briefcase um mm. that's a whole yes. different chapter of this thing <laughs> um you've got those those in between years like when they're facing each other in the g1 and it's not really a drawing match anymore but it's still okada versus tanahashi at the end of the day um you've got the official like transfer ship of like tanahashi you know losing at Russell kingdom 10 like there's there's different ones that i think each one of these things offer something unique but if you're looking for the earliest version of of the story obviously because it comes first but you're watching you're watching the the growth and the decline of of, of greatness mm. yeah i think for i think for me um and and you put it very eloquently there rich uh, to understand what makes modern new japan great you have to understand the foundational feud between okada and tanahashi and to watch that transference like you mentioned of the a ship from one guy to the next and i don't know that they've always done such a clean transition within this company you know um of one guy to the next and and told it over subsequent stories of different matches within a feud the way that they did here uh especially and i know for a fact they never did it on this high level the other thing too is like um you know some feuds for instance you know you talk about your steamboat flares for instance and you know those matches are great but they're all kind of very similar with tanahashi and, and um, okada every every outing they had at least for the first couple years every match told a different story and had a different feeling and had a different vibe and pace and timing to it and like until, until like you can love Wrestle Kingdom 9 and Wrestle Kingdom 10 all you want, everything that follows after it. But to understand how great those matches are, you got to go back and watch this stuff. And when you watch this stuff, you're like, oh my God, now I understand why Okada is such a big deal. And I understand what Tanahashi did and, and how formative this was. And like, um, do I think that these are the best matches of their uh, feud? No, not at all. And uh, do I think that uh, these completely stand up to today's wrestling maybe not but they told such a rich story 
within the context of these four matches that like it, it made me really grow an appreciation of what they accomplished and what this boom period meant and how it played out from 2012 until the end of like 2020 and and you know how important that Naito title win over Okada really was in the dome that ushered us into this new era and uh yeah I, I just think that uh it's really cool to look back you know a decade later how pivotal this title change really really was and how much of a like monumental shift it was in the entire foundation of wrestling and it's still kind of reverberating today and uh you know that we can put our two cents on it and kind of contribute that to the uh to the space i guess yeah like wrestling in america is even like changed like drastically because of this because like there's another place for people to become stars because it gets built up to such a big degree yeah man it's just so great watching this and like you said josh i got i got a further a greater appreciation um just for New Japan storytelling for Tanahashi for Okada, um, yeah, especially Okada. Cause I, like you mentioned, I think sometimes he his that's how talented he is gets taken for granted, and people want to come with the LOL Okada wins, and he's always pushed. But you just look back from the very beginning, and it's like, man, like that guy had it all put together from the very beginning, but still got better throughout the years, and it's just seeing how great he was you know, at 24 to how great he is now, it's just like crazy. Like this, the once in a lifetime talent that Okada is. Yeah. It could have easily failed uh, with, with someone that was even 10% less than Okada. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? The other thing too, we got to give our tip our hat to Gato and, everything that he had when it comes to his hand and his creative process and all this, you know, and it's easy to like look around house of torture and this and that merging of the titles. But like, you know, he did kind of give us 10 years of the best wrestling on the planet. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, we got to kind of, yeah, give him his due for this shit. You know, am I I still going to go around saying like, you know, let's give Gato a chance. No, you know, but, I still want to look back and be like, yo, this guy really like did incredible business and incredible creative, incredible booking. And, uh, and it, it, it's something special. And uh, if you guys haven't seen these matches, I hope you enjoy this review, but uh, you need to check them out for yourself because uh, they, they fucking rule. Well, nice. Uh, Rich, are you sticking around for the, for the other stuff? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, well do, you, do you want to give us your plugs or anything? Yeah, you give, give your plugs to our listeners where they can find you online. Sure. Um, you guys can find me here on this network, um, at Social Place Podcast Network, One Nation Radio, where I'm uh, on there uh, talking with my, uh, my homeboy James Boyd, and we're talking about uh, AEW, uh, big news in wrestling, stardom, different stuff like that. So if you're just trying to scratch the itch on stardom, you keep hearing the buzz, wondering what's going on, come check us out. Dr. Joshi will help you out uh, and, and all that. You just find me on Twitter at richlatter 32 Pop on YouTube, type in Rich Ladder. You can check out some of the music stuff as well. Nice. Well, Rich, thanks for coming on. It was great having you on again. And hopefully, you know, uh, New Japan picks up and we can have you on <laughs> again in the future. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Always happy to be on Keeping It Strong Style. Uh, thank you, guys. Yeah, if we ever have that uh, AEW New Japan Dome show, then then I know all of a sudden we're going to get going. <laughs> 
get a call from Rich. Be like, yes, all right, everyone, ready, ready to come on now. Ready to break it down. You know. <laughs> Let's talk about Okada Omega 6 or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> all right, Joe. All right, see you. Rich. See ya. Peace. All right. All right so, well, now that we got that riffraff, uh, ready, to, ready to have a real discussion about New Japan. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about uh, New Japan Strong. We had the conclusion of the Nemesis Tour this past Saturday. Show opened up. We had Alex Zane defeating Ari Davari. 10 minutes, 7 seconds. This was a rematch uh, from a couple of months ago. Uh, Davari asking uh, the, the Strong officials for a rematch here and getting it, uh, but he, he failed to defeat the, the Taco Bell man here in this open contest. Um, you know, it was fine. Um, I think Alex Zane and Arya Davari are both very good wrestlers. Uh, I think they've got a lot to offer. I think that um, things have changed a bit with New Japan since Alex Zane was last involved with the product. You know, um, when Alex Zane first broke in, he was initially just involved on those early New Japan of America tours as kind of like just a, a auxiliary guy that a lot of people didn't know it wasn't until the gcw viral backyard matches started kind of coming into the uh the public light that people started to realize like oh alex zane's been wrestling for new japan for like a year and a half and by that time you know they started uh you know the pandemic started and he was on all those um shows that were just in la in the empty studio so i mean it's not like alex zane has had a long history of uh being showcased in front of live crowds with New Japan. So even though he's got a history, it's kind of a new thing for him. And then, you know, conversely, Arya Davari, a guy from 205 Live, he's still kind of finding his niche on the indies, you know, separated from WWE and that 205 Live brand. Uh, you know, he does the fine carpet. Obviously, they're telling a story here where Arya Davari wants to change his cheating ways and uh, go straight. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Toriano G1 storyline where he was doing the... Uh, you know, the fair play, but, uh, yeah. ultimately, ultimately Ari Davari was almost reverted to his, uh, you know, to his cheating tendencies, thought better of it. That cost him because he hesitated and gave Alexander the opening to defeat him. I don't know how I feel about either of these two guys long-term with the product. Um, I felt like they both fit better into the early uh, stages of what New Japan Strong was when you had a lot of junior talent, a lot of high flying, and a lot of, you know, that sort of style. And the whole tone and attitude of New Japan Strong has shifted quite a bit more to kind of more closely align to the strong style esque nature of what New Japan is, especially with Ari Davari doing the flying carpet ride. I think that's something that might get over in front of smaller crowds with like 1500 or something like that. But, uh, you know, I just don't know that either of these two uh, performers have really created a connection with the New Japan audience, whatever that might be, or really found their niche within the, uh, the landscape of New Japan Strong. But, you know, they're working to figure that out. This was a fine match. I think it's cool that they're doing the story with Ari Davari. I think it'll be interesting to see how it, how it all plays out long term. Yeah, he did a kind of a promo in the the backstage comments, you know, apologizing for grabbing the ring bell and 
going back to his old ways. He's still working on himself. Like it's, it's like it's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next month. It's it's going it's to be a process of me changing. And he's asking for patience from the fans. And he apologizes to Alex Zane. And so yeah, it, it, it's an interesting story. But like you, I'm just not sure how Daivari fits stylistically into New Japan Strong. Like you mentioned, you know, New Japan Strong has kind of um, evolved into more of a you know grapple, heavy, hard hitting, uh, more strong style based type of submission based type of wrestling. Uh, and both these guys are you know the cruiserweight kind of high flying style. And uh, obviously, there's a junior division in New Japan, and that style can fit in. But on Strong, we're not really getting a ton of juniors uh, anymore, really. And and that style's not kind of the house style anymore. And I don't know, Devar, he's a good hand, but I've never really been like impressed with him, even like during like, the WWE stuff, Cruiserweight Classic and the 205 stuff. So uh, to me, I guess it's fine to have him, but um, I'm not that, like if he, if he left again, I wouldn't be upset. I think he's much more foundationally sound than Alex Zane is. Yes. Even though they've both been wrestling about the same amount of time, I think he's much more uh, adept at just, being a sound pro wrestler, but I do think he needs to show a little bit more than just that. If he wants to make it in new Japan, he's doing well for what they're giving him, but uh, you know, you want to maximize those opportunities. Obviously if they're giving him a storyline, that means they do see something in him um, similar to like the Barrett Brown situation. And, you know, now he's kind of found his character and, you know, for better, or for worse, he's aligned with the straight dog army. Uh, eventually I'm sure that this will lead to, Hopefully something for Ari Davari, but uh, I think both of these guys got a little bit of work cut out for them. Yeah. So in the second match, we had the final match in the Alex Coughlin Challenge Series. Alex Coughlin defeating J.R. Kratos, 9 minutes and 22 seconds. Yeah, so my quick thoughts here. Alex Coughlin comes out, and he just looks fantastic. I mean, just jacked. I'm like, oh, my God. I thought my body goals were Cesaro. You know, I told my girlfriend that my body goals were Cesaro. She laughed in my face. It felt really bad. <laughs> but I've changed my mind. My body goals now are Alex Coughlin. <laughs> I want to look like this guy. He looks like a super saiyan. Like, it's it, it's insane. Yeah. But, um, I've shredded. Seen... What's that? That's a shredded. Yeah. He's huge. Vascular. Look at him. He's vascular. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, um, you know, Kratos, a guy that he's had a lot of trouble with for, during his time as a, a young lion in New Japan. They even had a match uh, on Josh Burnett's Bloodsport last February, I believe, or maybe the February before. I can't remember. But, uh, you know, so I've seen him wrestle before. And uh, the match starts fine. But the deal is, like, Kratos is just eating him alive. I mean, J- Jared Kratos was fucking him up. And, like, at one point I was like, Dude, Alex Coughlin's not doing so good. And I, I heard myself, and I was like, oh, I don't mean, like, in the uh, shoot sense, like, he's performing, like, not well. I mean, like, in the uh, kayfabe sense where he's not doing well in the match. And I was like, this is probably pretty good if they're getting me to speak in the kayfabe tone. Right. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's not doing so hot. <laughs> <laughs> Jared Kratos is really beating him up. But, um. And then, like, he starts firing up at the end and, like, starts coming back. And then, like, you know, suddenly he's got this man in a German. 
And then I, I hear the one, the two, and then the three and Kratos' arm comes up. And, like, they did it just believably enough to where, like, Kratos almost kicked out. But, like, he just didn't quite kick out. And they gave the win to Coglin. And I was like, holy fuck, did they just have Alex Coglin win? And, like, I, yes, I know it's his final match in his challenge series. And I know he's graduating. But, like, it is so few and far between that they actually let the young lion win that last match, especially against a big guy like Kratos. I was like, dude, that's fucking awesome. Like, you know, kudos to Alex Coughlin, kudos to Kratos. Like, I thought this was really cool. Even though, you know, I didn't think the match, like, blew me away or anything, it didn't matter. The story was so great. Yeah, and they set the, the foundation for that story, you know, in previous tours when these guys were in multi-man matches and Coughlin would try to power him up and try and slam him down and, you know, J.R. Chris would always kind of fight back and, uh, the crowd was really great for this uh, match. They were really behind Coglin and were, were totally against J.R. Kratos. And anytime Coglin got the upper hand, the crowd was behind him. And, you know, just that key spot, the first spot where Kratos hits the big splash, but then Coglin catches him and lifts him up like he's getting ready to do a belly-to-belly. And the crowd's like, oh! But then Kratos, uh, you know, broke out of it. And so pretty much uh, then the next big spot was the uh, the gut wrench. He does the deadlift gut wrench to Kratos, and the crowd loses their mind. And then, like you mentioned, towards the end there, he hits the deadlift German and gets the win. Huge victory. So, yeah, big moment for Alex Coughlin. He is uh, officially graduated. He popped up at RevPro this weekend in his new gear. He's going to be doing some RevPro and UK dates um, throughout uh, next couple, or throughout this month, I think even in the beginning of March. Um, so he's, you know, in the ground running. So then our main event, we had the first US of J Open Challenge Switchblade Jay White. He defeats the fallen angel Christopher Daniels, 19 minutes and seven seconds. Well, you know, um, right now, because Jay White is not in Japan and because he's just kind of existing between New Japan Strong and Impact, it sort of feels like uh, earlier, Rich kind of made a joke and he alluded to Cody, you know, and kind of alluded to how Cody sort of, uh, he didn't say these words, but I've spoken about it many times. Cody exists in the quote-unquote Cody-verse for you AEW fans, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, right now, Jay White, obviously he doesn't have the never open weight title, he's not wrestling in Japan, and he's not really you know, mucking it up with the, uh, you know, the New Japan strong lower end guys. He's kind of above that. So he has devised this J US of J open challenge, which is cool. I mean, we've seen some open challenges over the years that have really been successful. I mean, the John Cena US title challenge in like 2015 was really great. Cody's open challenge just what last year or the year before really awesome. But, um, you know, Jay's kind of done that. And the idea of it on paper is awesome. And, and in fact, in practicality, it's good too because you're bringing in outsiders, top guys to draw these big shows for New Japan Strong and to kind of keep Jay White busy until he's ready to go back to Japan. So I like all of that. That being said, it does kind of feel like he's existing in this own little Jay universe, you know? He's not... Uh, participating outside of impact in any other really independent capacity you know we're not seeing him pop up in aaw or pwg or you know any of the other like you know gcw you know he's not 
he didn't show up at Hammerstein Ballroom or anything like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, which those are all things that like I don't know. I felt I feel like maybe on the one hand you, they could be seen as being below him, but on the other hand, like maybe it could really create some cool intersectional buzz if he was doing stuff like that. But he's not. You know, he's just kind of having these matches. And in this case, you know, part of the story was that he was giving a young up and comer. <laughs> Christopher Daniels a shot at him. Obviously, Christopher Daniels a longtime veteran, over 20 years in the business, probably uh, towards the tail end of his career, and you know a contracted guy with AEW. And it sounds, it seems like they're trying to build a little buzz off the, uh, you know, New Japan AEW, you know, working relationship. But uh, I feel like this gimmick is leaving me a little lacking. I would be fine with it if I if it was combined with other interesting things and yes he is working impact jay is and yeah i think he's got some things coming up with like the next pay-per-view but like i would like to see jay doing maybe showing up on dark or showing up on dynamite or rampage or one of these just something you know just something i don't know what it is but like i'm not really content for him to just do the one strong taping and then no japan and then nothing else really except for like a inconsequential impact stuff and it kind of makes the essence of the match feel kind of lacking to me. I don't know. Yeah, it definitely feels, I definitely get that. He, it does feel like he's kind of in his own little world. He's not really, he doesn't really interact with many of the other people on Strong. And right with his star power, you would think, all right, why isn't he challenging Philly Tom Blawler? Like, why isn't there, why isn't he going for the Strong title if he's going to be on Strong? You uh, would have to beat him. Right. Um, and I guess they don't, they don't want to do that right now. Um, but yeah, I think he would definitely capitalize on doing something else, um, especially AEW and you know, uh, this whole USOJ Open Challenge. Uh, it's mainly it seems like it's mainly going to be AEW talent. So we had Daniels here. The next one uh, coming up was an AEW guy as well. Um, so you know, he he's calling out these AEW guys at the end of this match. He hit the promo. He said, "You know, uh, I want somebody else, Elite Bebe," alluding to um, Adam Cole. Um, but I think it's time that, you know, they add some steam by having Jay show up um, and attack somebody on AW programming. Then maybe that leads to the match on Strong or you do something on Strong that sets up to something on Dynamite um, to get some more hype. Well, I think that's my problem with it is that they're trying to build off the idea. Like he's working a quote unquote program where. AEW needs to be, he's, he's got this open door policy, right? And he's not going to go to them. They need to come to him and they need to send their best to him. But like, if we're being very honest, New Japan Strong is not quite the same platform as say, for instance, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and anybody with uh, two eyes and, and, you know, can see that, you know, Strong is great, but it's not quite the same thing. And then it's like, the reality is he did show up on impact and do that face off with Kenny Omega. And there's a part of you that's like kind of maybe hoping that throughout this whole saga that it's going to lead to Kenny Omega. But I know deep down for a matter of fact, it's just not. And then it makes me wonder why are we doing this to begin with? You know, um, it's basically to call upon the rabid fandom fandomdom of you know, a very small niche subsect of New Japan hardcores that don't like AEW, that just want to see him slander them, and then, but then they still pop when the AEW guy shows up and gets beat by 
Jay White, it it just I don't know, feels kind of just like too insulary. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I want if, if they're gonna have an open door, I want the door to actually be open. I want him to interact with guys. You know, I love Christopher Daniels. Watched him for years. Think he's a great guy. I love some of the other guys that are coming over that he's going to be wrestling. But, like, you know, Jay White's a big star, man. I want to see him wrestle another big star from that company. I want to see him wrestle, like, an Adam Cole or, or an Orange Cassidy or a Chris Jericho or somebody, not Christopher Daniels, a guy that hasn't been on the program for months and months and months. And, you know, at this point, people probably think is semi-retired, you know? Right, it kind of feels like AW is big leaguing him in, in a way. It's like, yeah, and he's pretending like he's big leaguing them, but it's very apparent that he's not. Anyone with a with a two eyes can see. Right, yeah, it's like, all right, TK's like, oh, you want to do your little thing over there? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll send you Daniels, and I'll send you some other like you know mid card guys, but we're not going to acknowledge you on our TV, or we're not going to send you a main eventer. Right, right, and then at that point, it's like, well, then why are you doing this? And I. I guess it maybe is semi beneficial because you're getting Jay White against an outsider. Maybe that's exciting, but for me, it just doesn't move the the needle enough. You know what I mean? Like if they send Kip Sabian or Brian Cage, well, I guess if they send Brian Cage would be cool. But like if they send Kip Sabian, I'm not going to be that stoked about it. You know what I mean? Right. And like uh, Peter Avalon, something like that. You know? Yeah. Now getting to the match, this was one where I got to be honest with you, I, I was. I wasn't that into it. Maybe some of my earlier thoughts uh, kind of add to that. I also think that uh, the production, I feel like they even lowered the lights a little bit more for this match, which I don't think was maybe necessary. I could be wrong on that, but it just felt so dark and dingy. And the crowd was kind of into it, but there was a lot of downtime where the crowd was quiet. And uh, that might have something to do with the uh, cerebral you know, wrestling style of Jay White. And then the other thing too is like, I think Christopher Daniels looked beat down. Now there was, he did a lot of great stuff. He, he went for the, you know, best moonsault ever. He did dives. I mean, he clearly is still extremely talented. I mean, he always will be. He's Christopher Daniels for crying out loud. But he just didn't move like Christopher Daniels did even a year ago. And it, it made me kind of feel down to watch Christopher Daniels at this stage, maybe not able to go at that level anymore. Um, and I felt like there was some miscommunication, some botchiness. And uh, I guess it was a fine defense or, you know, a fine like main event, but I don't know if it needed to go 19 minutes. That just felt for them maybe too long. And uh, at the end of it, they started to, to I guess turn up because you started to get a couple chants and this is awesome. And right then and there, Jay White hit the uh, the Blade Runner, shut those fans up, which was funny. But um, I don't know. I, I was I was more down on this match than I thought I was gonna be. Uh, probably like only I don't know three and a half, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd go back and rewatch this. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the match, and you know, with Daniels, to me, I I feel like this is the best that he's looked in, in a long time. I feel like. You know, the last time he was on AWTV and tagging with uh, Kazarian, he just looked really broke down. Um, and it kind of felt like Kazarian was kind of really lifting the load of, of that tag team. Uh, but I thought he looked, you know, pretty good for, for his age and the miles on his body. Like you mentioned, he was doing BMEs and, and the dives and um, the Angels wings and all his signature spots. Maybe they weren't as crisp as, you know, you know, 04, 05, you know, 
exhibition champ Daniels, but I, I thought he he looked pretty good for his current stage. And uh, yeah, it wasn't the best strong main event, but I don't know, I thought it was pretty good. And uh, I popped for uh, somebody in the crowd was playing the role of Gato, and they were like Kiwi Jay, Kiwi Crusher. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, oh, you want, you want the Kiwi Crusher? And he just does another move for like heat, but then eventually does do the Kiwi Crusher. So that, that, that was hilarious. Uh, so yeah, Kiwi so. <laughs> so yeah, fine main event here. It's definitely, I don't, it's not a recommended. I'm not going to say go out of your way to watch it. If you're a huge Daniels fan, it might be cool to check out, but uh, a fine, fine start here to the, the opening chat. Daniels cut a promo too, and he's like, I was just in this ring like two years ago. And I was like, wait, was he? And I was like, oh, wait. Fuck, SCU was like on those like LA shows. Yeah, I forgot about that. I, I've been thinking like this man hasn't been in the ring like in a New Japan ring since the days of Curry Man. Like, in <laughs> 02. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, I guess he was. I guess SCU was mucking it up just a, you know just a couple years ago on Access. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, but um, you know, uh, with that all being said, I've heard really good things about the most recent Jay White match on strong so you know we'll wait and see how that plays out in the next tour right and then uh based on who the next one is coming up on the 17th for the rivals taping that one should be uh pretty good as well but one last thing before you uh answer question here um there was an incredible promo by alex coglin post-match yes talk talking about his time and thanking the fans and thanking the company and what to expect for the future and if you haven't heard that post-match promo i would not do it justice trying to pretend to do the promo you need to just go it's very short but just go listen to it it's on new japan world and probably on youtube incredible stuff yeah it's on twitter too uh obari he uh retweeted it out so bro jeremy i'm telling you i'm a coglin guy <laughs> not a Connors guy. I'm not a friend. I thought I was. A, I thought I was those two guys, but I'm not. Like, fuck all that noise. I'm Coglin. Team Coglin all the way. <laughs> you remember when uh, Pokemon uh, Go first came out? What there was like Team Mystic and Team whatever the fuck. Yeah, like the yellow, whatever the the red, yellow, and the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm Team Coglin. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna make myself like a Pokemon Go like logo and put that shit on the back of my car so everyone knows. Team Coglin. <laughs> uh, so we had a question from uh, the JM. But only, when it co- but, but only when it comes to white young lions. Not, you know, that doesn't override my love for Narita or Kimura or Suji. The uh, JML asks, who do y'all think will beat Filthy Tom for the strong title? He says, sorry, Filthy. That's a really, really tough question because... I feel like there's a, a few ways you can go. You can do one of these, like, no gay slash LA dojo guys, and that story seems to be pretty easy to tell. You know, if you want to have, like, Gabe Kid or Narita be the guy, sure. But I don't know that they're necessarily ready to be, like, the placeholder and the guy that carries the strap for the strong brand. And then you look around and you're like, well, who is it? Could they bring in someone from New Japan proper to come feud with him and beat him? That is a possibility. But when I look at New Japan Strong, I'm like, I don't know who there really is on the main roster that is primed in position. It feels like maybe it should be um, Chris Dickinson, maybe. Bro, that's just exactly based on their what whole I was, history. That's exactly what I was thinking about. And I feel like, like I don't know that they're gonna do that, but it feels like maybe it should be him. 
obviously we're big fans. My one big question is just, um, does he have enough, um, like, attachment to the fandom to draw when they're doing these tours with these one-night, you know, uh, TV tapings? Are people going to come out and see Dirty Daddy like that, you know? Right, I guess it depends on what market it is. Uh, in, in the Philadelphia market, the, the, those uh, showdown shows, he was super over on those shows and the Suzuki match. And so I feel like certain, certain markets will definitely get behind um, Dirty Daddy. I feel like the title change could come during the, the WrestleCon tapings, uh, you know, WrestleMania well, weekend. Well, we do know I, it's not in the news, but I mean, um, just last weekend, or maybe it is in the news, you know, Chris Dickinson said he's making his return during Joey Janelle's spring break. Right. Uh, or who, whoever spring break is. So I don't think that's, but here's the thing. I think if you really want to go with him, you got to heat up the feud and do maybe not a series of matches per se, but like preview matches and a storyline, kind of like what they did with Fred Rosser to really get interest Mm-hmm. And if you do that, I think you can heat them up enough to do the switch. My other question, too, though, is um, with them going to Axis, do you think that they should maybe try and find a way to get New Japan strong on that television channel since the only platform for it is New, is, uh, New Japan World? That doesn't seem to be enough to, uh, to garner like really mainstream attention from the average wrestling yeah, I think that could be an option, or at least starting out doing some advertising for Strong throughout the Access process product. And I know yeah. right right now they're just showing the the exact canned replay, so they're not, they're not adding anything in. But uh, come March, where the, the new stuff is starting, like, if I were them, I would definitely be plugging Strong on that show, so that way you have that that hundred thousand people who are watching Access. Uh, if they're not current subscribers, they, they can hop on and watch Strong. Yeah, I think, um, just to finish the question, I think Chris Dickinson's the guy I'd maybe go with. I mean, he's got the look. He's got the talent. He seems very devoted to this brand. They've already done big uh, main events with him and guys like Narita and Suzuki. He showed, he's shown that he has the goods. Um, I think it's just like a matter of pulling the trigger. Right. So next Saturday will be the start of the New Beginning USA Tour. So on night one, Show will open up with uh, Brody King taking on Yu Yamura. Uh, the middle match will have Leo Rush and Rocky Romero taking on Jarrell Nelson and Royce Isaacs of Team Filthy. Then the main event, big grudge match, blow-off match here. The Wild Rhino, Clark Connors, will take on TJP of the United Empire. Well, looking forward to that. Um other announced tours coming up. So we've got the New Japan New Year's Golden Series. It was on brief hiatus. It looks like it's returning February 7th, 2022. Um, we have an announced card. Uh, Wato and Taguchi will be taking on the uh, team of... Is that the main event? Yes, that is the main event. Yeah, okay. I'll go the opposite way. Great Okan will be taking on Yuta Nakashima in opening action. Kosei Fujita and... Uh, Oiwa will be taking on the LIJ team of Bushi and Hiromu Takahashi. Third match, we got Tiger Mask and Hanma taking on the Bullet Club team of Gato and Taiji Shimori. Fourth match, we have Tenkoji, Toriyano, and Yuji Nagata uh, versus the team of Suzuki-Gun, Doki, Suzuki, Taichi, and Taka Michinoku. Fifth match, we have the Chaos team of Goto, Ishii, Yo, Yoshihashi taking on the House of Torture unit 
Dick Togo, Evil, Sho, and Yujiro Takahashi. Semi-main event, Hiroshi Tanahashi, Okada, and Togi Makabe. They'll be teaming up to take on the LIJ uh, trio team of Sonata, Shingo, and Tetsuya Naito. And then the main event, we have Master Wato, Ryazuki Taguchi, taking on the uh, tag team of Suzuki-Goon, that's El Desperado, and Yoshinobu Kenemaru. Are they the junior? Is this a junior tag team title match or no? No, it's a non-title. Uh, the champs are still Flying Tiger. Okay, yeah, I couldn't recall who that was, yeah. so I'm guessing that this is a, uh, you know, probably. I mean, it seems like Wato and Taguchi are gonna have the next title shots. I can't recall if they're so, getting a title shot in this. So Wato Wato is facing Despy for the junior title singles match. Ah. so that's building up this match. But uh, Flying Tiger, it's Ti- the Bullet Club team. Yeah, Flying Tigers defending against Bullet Club's cutest tag team. But, I mean, if Wato and Taguchi win here, and then Wato... It might fa- put them in line. Right, if Wato fails to beat Despi, which I'm assuming he is going to, then, yeah, then Team uh, 6 and 9 here could face the winner of Flying Tiger and uh, Bullet Club. So, here's the here's the deal. I made a mistake. The other week, I said that they were called Team 6 and 9 because Taguchi kept calling them Team 6 and 9, but that's not the name of their team. He was doing that as a playoff of being the 69th junior tag team champions. I think they're called one and eight. Mm. Doesn't that sound more right? I think so, yeah. Or some, whatever numbers they are, they're not six and nine. But he's now like so fixated on 69 that he's calling them six and nine. And Wato <laughs> keeps like trying to uh, be like, no, <laughs> dude, that's not our numbers. And he's like, All right, six. <laughs> Whatever you say, six. Uh, uh, so uh, another uh, tour announcement. So uh, New Japan announced in celebration of the promotion's 50th anniversary, they made the return of the Hyper Battle Tour. So the New Japan Hyper Battle Tour 2022 will be a four-show tour taking place from Sunday, April 3rd to Saturday, April 9th. It's the first time this tour has been held in 18 years and the following uh, dates and locations for the tour are Sunday, April 3rd at Axe City Hamatsu in Hamatsu, Japan. Monday, April 4th in Cork and Hall in Tokyo. April 7th, uh, Thursday at the Tokozawa Municipal Gymnasium in Tokozawa, Japan. And then Saturday, April 9th in Sumo Hall in Tokyo, Japan. Each show will be held in accordance with the COVID-19 policy of the host prefecture. That sounds awesome. Looking forward to that. And uh, it's right in line with our uh, show schedule. So, yeah. <laughs> lucky us. Um, Lions Roar episode four premiered this past weekend. Uh, we got a chance to check that out. Um, Jeremy, what were your thoughts just overall briefly on this uh, episode? It looks like we got some questions on it, too. Yeah, I uh, thought it was another good episode and just a lot of what they were doing like kind of reminded me so much of like my amateur wrestling days and some of the practices and like when the whole like one person on the team messes up or some of the team messes up like the whole team gets punished and like just like the whole like the whole tired exercise thing they were doing and like how some guys were like lacking so they had to like do extra stuff like extra burpees and stuff like that. Uh but yeah, just sort of kind of more uh kind of cool seeing the background and i love too like when they're just like wrestling in the grass um towards the end there and like kind of shooting at each other and like that was kind of a fun thing to kind of remind me of wrestling too where you, you kind of sit back and everybody's like wrestling each other in the same space and stuff like that um i, I like the story too of, i think it was uh aj the guy that they were 
talking about and you know it's one of those, those cases where he's like you know i am actually i've learned from his experience that i don't want to be a wrestler but i maybe want to be a referee or you know work in the management side or behind the scenes uh kind of thing so that was kind of an interesting twist on what we've seen so far so yeah um the episode was definitely just like how you described um i did think that you know we talked about last week how it seems like they're profiling different guys and you know um the gentleman what you said his name was aj yeah yeah i he seemed to be also one of the guys that they were complaining about during the episode that was lacking and was having trouble keeping up with the other group and it was hard to tell who they were talking about at different times, but it seemed like the coaches might have even been like saying like he doesn't belong here, he's taking shortcuts and stuff like that. Am I wrong? I think it was somebody else because I felt like because he was talking about how you know, he loved the the endurance part, like the, the conditioning part, and I felt like he like during the conditioning stuff, like he was like right up there and was doing well. I think it might okay, have been gotcha. the bigger. Um, I'm not sure if he's Samoan or Tongan guy. I think was one of the guys they were talking about. See, I was misunderstanding. I thought that they that like they were showing where he thought that things were going well, and the coaches were like, "Dude, this guy sucks." <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe but, I maybe I missed it. Maybe maybe it is that. Yeah, well, you know that this is what happens when you watch the show while you're in the middle of uh, you know doing you know financial work. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, at the same time, though, I I like the show. I like that you know they're they're showing other aspects of the story. It's not just guys making their dreams come true and all that they're showing the hardships they're showing the physicality of what they go through and also you know um what the coaches really put them through and i mean like i'm like damn dude like this is crazy and if it you know they're saying it doesn't even compare to what they do in japan so i'm like fuck (laughs) yeah uh i think it's gonna be interesting to see like who stays and how everything shapes up you know as the episodes go on but i thought it was a, a a really good episode just to kind of showcase how difficult the life they live is and everything they sacrifice and and how seriously they take the craft, these coaches. One other thing too, before we answer some questions, um, I read an interview that Yuto Nakashima uh, gave and uh, well, I read some excerpts from it, but it sounds like he actually went to the Fale Dojo and spent time there and then went to the Noge Dojo. So, you know, it seems like there might be more, of a, obviously there's definitely a relationship between the two dojos and they are endorsed by new japan of course but um up to now we haven't heard too much about anybody that's in the dojo having gone to Fale's. but it seems like based on what i read that yuto nakashima might have started there might have been sent by new japan to go to like initially start out in Fale's dojo hmm that's interesting i, never, I hadn't seen that interview but yeah that, that's pretty cool that 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 happened maybe We'll see more they of that. tweeted it out. Uh, his uh, his assistant coach, I forget the gentleman's name, uh, but they have a Folly Dojo like Twitter now, and they tweeted it out. You can look for it yourself. Maybe I'm a little inaccurate with some of the information. I don't know if he was there before he was in the Noge no Dojo or or like interim, like he went there for a period and then came back. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but he definitely spent time there. So I'm like, you know, this relationship's a lot stronger than maybe we had thought it was initially or even knew of. Right. Uh, Red user PC91 has a couple questions here about Lions for the New Zealand Dojo. Says, first of all, when do you think we will see some of the young Lions from the New Zealand Dojo in New Japan proper? I personally would love another Young Lions Cup so we get the Noge, LA, and New Zealand Dojo young boys battling it out. 
Well, you know, right now they've only got uh, the three guys. I would love to see, you know, some other New Zealand dojo guys show up. I think obviously when the uh, restrictions are lifted, that would make things more possible if it ever happens. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to hypothetically New Zealand dojo guys getting work in the local area and then finding a way to put that on new Japan world so we can see it for ourselves. Yeah. Which I think, uh, plays into his next question where he says, secondly, with the current border restrictions in Japan, they're closed until the end of February. Do you think we could see something like NJPW strong using the talent pool they have in the oceanic Australia and New Zealand region? Well, I think that was, uh, something I discussed last week where I think they, definitely could do something like that in the future and maybe even, you know, potentially now. I mean, uh, I don't know what your thoughts were on, on that, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, that would be cool. It's kind of, it would be following kind of the, the you know, the Triple H NXT model where you would have your your performance centers in different uh, countries and then you would do NXT shows in each country. And we saw that they try to do that with like NXT UK and they fail to do it also other places, but they could do that. We have Strong here in the U.S. So they could create, a version of strong for that region, um, using some of the independent wrestlers in in the town in this in that area that they trust, and then mixing in the young lions, and of course you have Robbie Eagles um, in that area, and then the you know Fale and the Tongan guys. Like I think that could be an interesting product if they had the you know the expenses and the talent to do it. Yeah, I mean they've had working relationships in the past with like uh, MCW. Um, and I mean, there's other places too. I think Border City is another spot, and uh, Empire Wrestling. You know, Mikey Nichols is still out there. Uh, PWA Black Label. That's another spot that uh, you know uh, Eagles likes to frequent. There's another major one. I can't remember what it is. So I mean, yeah. I mean, I would love if somehow they could, you know, get these. Fale Dojo Lions experience and then give exposure and maybe even do some sort of showcase or some sort of show. I don't know if they should go the full New Japan Strong on it, but, I mean, you know, whatever whatever's best for business, you know, one way or the other. Right. I mean, if they did, it's kind of like the Lions Break and Lions Gate, like kind of periodically. Oh, that would be cool. Like a, like a uh, Australia or New Zealand Lions Break project. Yeah. That would be a really cool idea. Yeah, that would be dope. Um, also, I want to figure out, like, um, this is the second time I've seen Chunko. You know, they were teaching yeah. them how to make Chunko. Yeah. And they did the same thing in the LA Dojo. And I'm like, fuck, I need to, if I want to get big like a lion. Yeah, man. I need to eat like a lion. I need to eat some <laughs> Chunko, dog. Like, you need to get, get the recipe, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's move on to the news here. Some just quick items here. Uh, Chase Owens. Announced that his uh, contract with New Japan has expired at the end of January, um, but I believe it's the same kind of gimmick he did last year, and then a few days later announced that he did re-sign a, a new contract. So uh, we're awaiting to see if he, he re-signs again or if he's actually done. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I, know what I, to think about I, that. I'd, I'd be surprised if he is done. Uh, I would too. The uh, V4 IWGP Heavyweight. Premium replica title is available on the Tokon Shop Global. So if you are a, a belt mark, uh, you can check that out. Uh, Here's the interesting thing with that: it's like almost three thousand dollars, right? And yeah. it's uh, 
it's updated. It's got updated side plates, and it's the V4 belt. It's not the current world title. It's the beloved V4 belt. Um, but, you know, here's the, here's the deal. The original V4 belt was designed by Dave Millican, and then they never did an official – they were never able to get an official replica through Dave Millican to represent the title. So there's been a bunch of bootlegs from different belt makers all throughout the years, and they've all been inaccurate until recently. Um, remember when they switched the title in New York when they gave the new quote-unquote title to Okada? Yeah. Well, that wasn't a Millican belt. That was a replica that was re-leathered by Dave Millican, but the plates were from a replica. And that's actually the design. So a bunch of the bootlegs that had been inaccurate became accurate because they became accurate based off the, the updated version of the title that they gave uh, to Okada New York. And that's what this replica, this premium quote-unquote replica is. It's a one-for-one -one copy of the same design and style and, and version that Okada carried, even the one that he's been carrying around as uh, recently as like Wrestle Kingdom. Mm. And so it actually is a good value for what you're getting because you're getting a one-for-one -one copy, basically, of the most recent version of the title, although it's not the same one that Dave Millican originally uh, designed. I say all that to say this. They're also selling an IWGP intercontinental replica for about $2,800 as well. That is a ripoff. Do buy that belt. <laughs> And let me tell you why, because the original belt was also a Millican, I believe, but it was also like multi. Naito broke it. And when they replaced it, they went and they bought a replica off of like eBay for $400. What you're buying when you buy that replica, the replica that you have now is a one-for-one one copy of a $400 replica, but you're paying $2,800 for it because New Japan endorsed it. You can get it offline for $400. <laughs> Do not buy it. And, you, and trust me when I, like, I'm not a belt mark, but like I read an article about this today and I've looked into this, like that belt, if you look at the, the amount of detail and layering that's involved in the uh, IWGP heavyweight belt compared to the intercontinental belt, the intercontinental belt is like, Yes, it's heavy, but it's flat. It's just one flat, you know, thing. It, it's not a $3,000 belt. Do not pay three. You can get the same thing for $400. I guarantee you it's out there. Save your money, kids. <laughs> yes. Uh, another news, uh, ring announcer, longtime ring announcer, uh, Kimihiko Ozaki is uh, leaving New Japan. I believe there's going to be a special on uh, New Japan World uh, for him. So you can check that out. Uh, well, I knew those poly attacks were going to take their toll and eventually, you know, result in, you know, Ozaki's <laughs> exit. It, it paid off. Uh, Filthy Tom Malala is doing one of the, the online meeting greets. Uh, that's coming February 16th. This week for access to classic match will be Abushi versus Tanahashi from the G1 Climax finals from uh, 2018. So you can uh, check uh. that out. Um, In my opinion, like one of the greatest New Japan matches ever, period. I put it up there with Okada Omega and Okada Shibata. Yeah, the match is incredible. Yeah, if you've never seen it, it's like the pin. I think it might be the best G1 final. I like it better than the Okada uh, 
Naito uh, finals. Mm. Then uh, last thing here, uh, Rev Pro High Stakes uh, was this weekend. There was a lot of New Japan involvement. We had Alex Coughlin, like I mentioned earlier, showing up, making a surprise. He defeated uh, Lord Gideon Gray one minute and 43 seconds. We had Chota Umino defeating Yota Suji, 16 minutes, 30 seconds. Gabriel Kidd was on the show. He defeated Francisco Akira, 14 minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, the Rev Pro Tag Title Match, the United Empire's Aussie Open, failed to win the titles from the Sunshine Machine team of Chuck Mambo and TK Cooper. And then in the main event, Will Ospreay successfully defended the undisputed British heavyweight title against Michael Oku, 41 minutes and 10 seconds. And it does seem like there is a new uh, version of the Rev Pro Undisputed British title, which um, signifies the unification of the two belts that Osprey had. And that's going to be up on Rev Pro streaming service, I believe, uh, any uh, second now. So you can check that yeah. out. Heard really great things about Osprey Oku. Definitely want to check that out. For the record, Jeremy, Aussie Open matches, I'm not considering them <laughs> for excursion match of the year, even though they are technically part of the United Empire. They have not even wrestled in the company yet. Right. I just figured, I thought they were going to win the titles for sure, just based off the whole United Empire push, but... Oh, absolutely. And I'm fine with us covering the news. Just want to make it very clear. They are not excursion match of the year eligible as of yet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's run through these uh, quick questions here and then get to a uh, recommended match of the week. Um, so first front of the show, Dan Coffin says, how does the point where you guys, when the forbidden door remained closed and no one from NJPW was in the Royal rumble? I'm not nearly as disappointed as I was from just having to have watched those Royal rumbles. Those were like literally two of the worst rumbles that have ever existed. So yeah, I guess I'm glad. Oh, let me put it to you this way. I would watch the Rambo from this year over both Rumbles any day. Oh, and definitely. Normally, yeah. normally, I would never say that. Yeah, these Rumbles. I mean, the whole pay-per-view was just a rough show, uh, especially the Rumbles. Uh, Grunty Dodd says, who, are, who was more successful in achieving their goals, Frankie Kazarian as the Elite Hunter or Yoshitatsu and his Hunter Club? They're the same. <laughs> When I think Frankie Kazarian, I think Yoshitatsu, just two failed hunters that were unable to take out anybody from either stable that they claim to be hunting. If anyone, if you're a wrestler and anyone gives you the hunter uh, gimmick and it's not Hunter Hearst Helmsley, you probably shouldn't take it because it's not going to work out for you. Right, yeah, because yeah, both these guys failed in hunting who they were hunting. So, yeah, they're, they're both the same. Uh, Josh number two says, if you were to make a NJPW Royal Rumble, who would you use and who would win? That, you know, this is an interesting question because earlier today, shout out to Sir Sam. He's a member of our uh, podcast network, done some write-ups. He's also done uh, work with Jeremy, for prediction columns, things like that. And he also is the host of the uh, All Elite Wrestling Match Guide which is a really cool new show that we've added just recently. He did a, uh, a tweet or like a Twitter thread. Uh, you know, I don't tweet, so I don't know what, the, what you call the shit, but he did a Twitter thread where there was a fantasy AEW Royal Rumble, and he did it through a randomized generator. And 
generated the different people that were coming out. And as they came out, you know, hypothetically, he was able to like add gifts and add storylines and just kind of book out a, a, a Royal Rumble just using AEW people. And I started reading it and I was like, damn, why didn't we think of this? This is an incredible idea. And like all the characters are so fully fleshed. Like um, it just like was awesome. And people really gravitated to it, like blew up on Twitter and like now it's on Reddit. And, um, you know, it's funny Josh too asked those questions. I'm like, damn, we should have done the same thing, but with New Japan. Right. You know? <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I would love to, I don't know. I don't want to steal Sir Sam's gimmick. Maybe we should get together with him and like <laughs> He's on know, do it. Do the shit. I don't know. Yeah, but, uh, I think it's more. Yeah, more something to flush out than a quick question here. We don't have time to dive into it because I mean, there's a lot you could do. I feel like with a New Japan Royal Rumble. The one thing I will say though, to answer the question very briefly, most Rambos or Rumbles that have occurred in New Japan usually don't include top stars for whatever reason. It would be really different and cool and interesting if they did a full fledged you know, uh, sub, like elimination style rumble battle royal match, but involving top guys like Tanahashi and Jay White and Osprey and, you know, Naito and Shingo and Okada. That'd be like, we, they've never done anything like that. It would be really cool. Yeah. Uh, next question here from Just a Little Bear Zero One, kind of out of a, out in left field. One, do you still consider Mikey Nichols with the company? He feels like the one dude from pre-pandemic that has not done anything with them since. I know Australia has some pretty strict pandemic precautions, but Robbie Eagle seems to have made it work. Um, I mean, no, I don't consider him to be with the company because he hasn't worked with them since like 2019. Um, but who knows? Maybe he is. You know, we we don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I know there's talks of like the Mighty O'Neal coming back together with him and Jonah and uh, Shane Haste, and you know they're using Jonah on strong, and so maybe down the line, maybe there will be a TMDK reunion. But as of right now, yeah, I don't think he's really with the company. I don't consider Mikey Nichols with the company the same way I don't consider like say Amazing Red with the company right now. Right. Um, last set of questions here from Hawaiian Punch BV. This has the politicking between NJPW and AJPW already started. A young line on excursion beat AJPW's former junior heavyweight champion at the Red Pro Show. Does sound like an excursion match of the year candidate. Um, well, let's be very clear. Um, Gabe Kidd is not a young lion any longer. So there is that part of it. And uh, Francesco or Akira Francesco, is he still with All Japan? I thought he wasn't. I don't think he is. I don't know what the deal is because I don't follow all Japan. I know he was their, you know, their world junior heavyweight champion not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is some sort of like, uh, you know, all Japan New Japan match, but I don't think it is right now. I, I don't know what I don't know where he's working, but uh, you know, it, it wasn't like a young lion came in and beat him. I mean, Gabe Kid is a graduated guy that's getting a push, so. You know, uh, I do. I did hear good things about that match, though, and I do want to check it out. Yeah. And it's a second question. Do you think this weekend is going is going to be Keith Thurman's last ticket to a big fight, or confirm that he's done? He does have trouble against 140 pounders. I don't know if I'd agree with that. Um, you know, he beat Danny Garcia pretty handedly. Um, 
but you know maybe there's something to that. You know, Keith Thurman, he's a Clearwater guy. Um, I like him a lot. I've always thought that Keith Thurman was a very, very good fighter and not a great fighter. Um, I do think he beat Manny Pacquiao in that fight on points. I don't care. I mean, you couldn't convince me otherwise, but at the same time, um, you know, he might still have a run left in him. I don't see why not. I, I don't think his skills have degraded that that far, but I, I think it just depends on what he shows this weekend. I mean, Nothing much more to add there. I, I, I do think that losing to a Pacquiao like that on the big stage probably was a big professional setback. But, uh, you know, he's still making money. He's still out there beating people up. So Nice. Well, last thing here, recommended match of the week. Last week you recommended Noki, Fujinami, and Tiger Mask versus Abdullah the Butcher, Bayface, and Dynamite Kid from the Golden Series January 8th, 1982. And... Young boy, I tried my hardest to watch this match, but I tried on my phone, I tried on my computer. The the video just kept freezing. Uh, at points, it would play with no audio. When it did play, and it kept freezing and pausing, so I was not able to watch this match in its really? position. Yeah. That's weird. Um, archive.org always works for me. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was just that certain day, but I tried yesterday, I tried today, and it was just it was giving me a hard time. Oh, man. Dang. All right. Well, I mean, what can you do? You know, I get to see this awesome match and you don't. So whatever. So I'll try it again uh, down the line. But what what did you like about this matchup? I mean, what I love about this match is just the miss. It, it's this gigantic smorgasbord of guys that probably don't belong in a, <laughs> you know, in a New Japan ring together. Like, you got Abdul the Butcher, who like loves to go around forking people in the head and is this gigantic monster. You got Babyface, who is, you know, this uh, one of the early high flying pioneers of probably Lucha Rezu and, you know, big uh, representative of Lucha Libre, you know, flying all over the place using his cheating tactics. And then Dynamite Kid, who's just like a dick, you know, and, you know, has that very hard-nosed, rough, rugged, stiff style. And he's in the middle of his feud with Tiger Mask. And then he's also, you know, feuded with Fujinami in the past. And all those, all three of those guys are top workers in the world at the time. Babyface isn't that far off. Fujinami is, like, probably the top heavyweight in all of Japan in terms of skill at, you know, in 1982. I mean, and then, you know, Tiger Mask is dazzling and fast and revolutionary and you know, mixing the shoot kicks and, and all that. And then Anoki's there, and Anoki's the biggest star in the country. And all of that, like, normally, like, for instance, if this is a WWF match or whatever, you'd probably just see Abdullah interact with Anoki and then, like, Fujinami interact with, the, interact with like, Babyface. But it wasn't like that here. You saw all these guys interact with one another, and the match is wild. Like, it's only 13 minutes, and it's just nonstop action. Boom, 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 boom. And they're telling a story where it's, like, Anoki, Fujinami, and Tiger Mask, the top three domestic stars in the whole company who have the most, like, sympathy and heat behind them, you know, fending off three foreign heels who are dastardly, who are, like, just rule breakers, who are cheaters, and that have very divergent styles. And... um the thing that really sets the match off is Abdullah the Butcher getting uh, 
heat on Tiger Mask on the outside, and he just brutalizes Tiger Mask, and the crowd loses their shit. And Anoki doesn't have to do much in the match. He just kind of fires up on the outside and comes in and beats people's ass. And The match is awesome. Like, you know, it's not a classically great match. I mean, I wouldn't go like four stars, probably like only three and a half, but it's 13 minutes of nonstop crazy, crazy action. Like, it's highly underrated, great gem of a match. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about 80s wrestling being slow. This is anything but slow. I mean, you know, this is like the predecessor to, uh, you know, high-paced, you know, indie-style wrestling or, like, what we see in Dragon Age, shit like that. It's really cool. Yeah, one uh, part that loaded for me, I saw, like, the baby faces, like, kind of, like, rushing the ring and, like, we're doing, like, they're trying to, like, rush the bad guys and they're like, super fast. Like, all three of them, like, came in the ring and were, like, taunting and the, the heels, like, powdered. Yeah, and that's the other thing. The crowd is so into this match. Like, even though it, it does end on a fuck match, it, it, it's, uh, you know, the baby faces win two to one. I think one one of the, uh, I think the final fall is, like, a, a disqualification or whatever, but, like, the way it plays out, the crowd doesn't care. They're so into it because they, they're seeing Anoki, Fujinami, and Tiger Mask team together against these monster foreign heels. So it's it's really great. Nice. Uh, my pick for recommended match of the week is Kazuchika Okada versus Tetsuya Naito from the 40th anniversary show. Okada's uh, first defense in his first IWGP title reign. Uh, picked that since we just reviewed the Rainmaker Shock, and that was the first defense from that. And then plus we have Okada defending against Naito coming up here in this year's Golden uh, Year series. So. Figured that'd be a good match for us all to watch and get ready for the, the upcoming title match. Yeah, one interesting thing with that, Okada's debut match in New Japan was against Tetsuya Naito as Young Lions. And Okada lost to Naito. Hmm. A lot of history there. Nice. So we'll check that out. And that's going to wrap things up for this week. Next week, we'll be back to review... Uh, some more of the Golden Series Tour and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuitbucks.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping a Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. The network is at Social Suplex. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. On Facebook, we are facebook.com slash social suplex. On Instagram, we are Social Suplex on Reddit. I'm the pro black guy. Just keeping a strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. And also check out our Discord channel. Link for that is in the show notes. And check out our YouTube channel, Social Suplex Podcast Network. And check out all the other shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Show Radio hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite, hosted by Floyd and Austin, and the AEW Match Guide podcast, hosted by Sir Sam. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review, and we will catch you next week on Keeping a Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Itchy Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.